We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blending and mixing and smashing together right out of Manichaeanism to produce the convergence, to produce the synthesis and that's what's crucial in all this and what is absolutely true from an alchemical esoteric philosophical and geopolitical perspective the fact that the ruling elite seek to be post-human jasonalysis.com Essentially political. 
your spiritual Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to Jay's analysis, and it was high time that we responded to the last week. Actually, last week was the week of the haters, wasn't it? It was not just this dude and that dude. There's actually about seven haters that went on a bender. Uh, Now, I'm not going to name any of them, and I'm not going to give them the attention that they want, because a lot of these people just want subs and they just want to cause trouble. But one thing I've noticed is the tendency. So we're going to be talking about a lot of different things today uh, that will hopefully be a learning experience. We're going to cover the uh, sections of St. Athanasius. I wrote a lengthy essay yesterday, about 15 page essay in response to these absurd uh, ac- uh, misuses of data cretus. And I also We'll be responding to some other issues that relate to eternal manifestation, namely Eric Ibarra and the mistaken arguments that Eric has made over the last uh, few years that he and I have, or I guess about a year and a half, two years that he and I have off and on had exchanges. So, uh, first of all, I would say it's not necessary to alert me. Like, I already know when... Anybody who, anybody makes, you know, a hater video, uh, I have the magic ability to, uh, almost automatically know I can, I can literally teleport to where haters are attacking. And beyond that, I have uh, been doing this kind of alternative media stuff for 12, 13 years. So I'm an old pro at this. I know all about how haters operate, how to handle all this stuff. And most of the time, it's not worth giving any attention to. Really, it's only worth responding to or giving attention to when there is an illustrative principle that you can derive from it or show and illustrate to others. So the first one I want to talk about is that if you're new to religious circles or churches, or especially churches that claim to have apostolic succession, one of the things that you'll run into is the phenomena of the wandering bishops. So it's worth talking about this just for a little bit because it actually ties into the intelligence world. Uh, the Episcopi Vagantes, this is the non-canonical world, the dark seedy underworld, and yes, it is a dark seedy underworld, of the wandering bishop phenomena. And the Wikipedia article is pretty good. It'll give you a good introduction on this. Again, not that Wikipedia is always right, but as you delve into this and you learn about the history, for example, of the set of a contest, and if you trace the history of the set of a contest movement back to their origins and how typically speaking in our day, people just kind of latch onto this as an online movement, you'll notice all the same patterns and trends that I dealt with in my cult video. So we have to be careful not to fall prey to cults and following anybody like a cult that's why I uh, direct people, of course, to find a local church that is good. I don't say follow me. I don't say that I'm the final arbiter on orthodoxy. I don't even represent any orthodoxy in any official capacity. I am an, a layman who puts forth his studies and his research 
and the stuff that I've looked into for the last uh, 10 to 20 years, depending on what topic. If it's the issues of uh, the essence, energy, distinction, absolute divine simplicity, and Thomism, that's a, a topic that I've studied for 10 years. If it's the issues of biblical theology, I've studied that for 20 years. So when people just say off the cuff, there's no way that that guy could have read thousands of pages of, of Augustine, uh, that is coming from a place of envy. Because, number one, I am not 20 years old. I'm much older than 20 years old, even though I may look young. And uh, throughout my 20s, I absolutely did read thousands of pages of Augustine and Aquinas because that was my life. I ate, slept, and breathed that stuff. In fact, I wanted to be a monk in my 20s. And, of course, being disillusioned with Roman Catholicism, I think most of you guys know kind of the path that I took religiously, and I've covered that in my Why Converted to Orthodoxy video, and I lay out all the flaws and the mistakes that I made over the years. Okay, so this is not a cult. We aren't running an operation where, uh, you know, you have to obey me. But what one thing that does happen as your channel starts to grow, and anybody who works in or does media type stuff will tell you is that eventually along the way, one of the unfortunate requirements is that you have to have a short attention span for haters and trolls. So you basically completely sever ties with these people. If you followed Boiler Room or Jason Alsis over the last, say, four years, uh, and there were there have been people who followed, you know, the stuff that I've done for even longer than that because I was I was blogging ten years ago even. But even if you followed for the last two or three years, then you know of people that we parted ways with on Boiler Room, people that we didn't get along with, people who uh, kind of lost their shit, <laughs> went nuts, uh, and so we had to sever ties with them. Uh, I'm not going to name names because there's no point in dredging up uh, old controversies. Other individuals who have uh, set out to seek to perpetually harass me, and I've had to get involved in uh, legal counseling on those kinds of situations, uh, at least a couple of those so far. I'm sure in the future there will be more cases of uh, targeted and intentional harassment where I do have to uh, involve legal stuff. But it should be known that, you know, any time that, and I'm not even that famous, I'm not that popular. You know, 36,000 is a, a, a decent-sized YouTube channel, but uh, there's a lot more to grow to say, you know, before anybody can say, oh, I'm famous, you know, or anything like that. But even still, you do get really weird people who form weird obsessions. And if you don't operate the way they want you to, they'll try to manhandle you. And if you don't do what I want. If you don't come on my podcast, if you don't do things the way I want, I'm going to set out to destroy you. You know, these kind of really sensitive, messed up people. And it's just unavoidable that you do have those kinds of people. At the same time, you also have people who are uh, kind of the fed troll type stuff. That does occur. Uh, that's a, a topic that I've studied for many years also. Uh, I've been involved in writing about and documenting that kind of stuff for my books, for my work, uh, for the videos that I do, for the TV show we did, even to a degree when we, when it was applicable to certain uh, films and TV shows that we covered. Um, so you have this other angle that a lot of people aren't aware of either, where you have individuals who will try to, to basically, uh, trying to find the show that we did where we cover this in depth. Let's see. Let's see. Yeah, here it is. 
So I'm going to say, if you're not, if you're not familiar with this, the way this, this whole world of idiots and goofuses works, it's, it's always helpful to familiarize yourself with this field because it's a real thing. This whole world of like the trolls and the paid sock puppets and the fake accounts and the bot and all that stuff, it does exist and they will you know, harass channels and they will pick people. And we did a great episode of Sunday wire, I think a couple of years ago called COINTEL deception tactics. Uh, and even though the COINTEL program is long gone, all of those same kinds of tactics and means and methods still exist. They didn't go away. They're still very present. So we have to be a little, um, we have to be wise about how we understand these things and how these things go down. And there's not always one bad guy, right? There's not just the, quote, Illuminati who's going to, um, you know, take anybody who questions them down. There are multiple players, multiple power blocks, multiple different interest groups that might have an interest in trying to disrupt people uh, and their, their message or whatever they're doing. So what was interesting was, was that this week we saw uh, a pretty, pretty heavy barrage of uh, very strange, bizarre, some anonymous, some public individuals within one week, uh, about six or seven of them launch a pretty serious attempt at uh, trying to undermine or trying to refute or come against Jay's analysis and the stuff I'm doing. Now, why would they do that? Well, again, I think there are multiple motives. I don't think that everybody was part of some troll network or anything like that. I do think a couple of those people could have been uh, trolls or feds. I think that's entirely possible given their pedigree and given their history. But uh, we're not going to go into that. We're not going to speculate. We're not going to worry about it because I think it was about this time last year where we had a similar network of individuals in alt media. All of a sudden, within one week, uh, all launched into the same coordinated uh, style of attack on the stuff that we were posting and that we were talking about uh, in Boiler Room or uh, on 21 Wire, what Patrick was doing or different people. And it was all within one week. No, so I just think that it's interesting that this week it was all within one week. And let's talk about the other funny, the funny thing that, that got to me was the accusations that... I'm a Bolshevik, a Nazi, a CIA fascist, and a Gnostic, and a troll and a shill all at once. Okay, now, again, we all know that anybody who does alternative media, you're going to deal with the people who say this kind of stuff. But what was funny is that this whole crew uh, had it all completely contradictory. <laughs> so, once again, <laughs> which is what I said last year when we had a similar uh, springtime, early spring outbreak the troll, the, the early spring outbreak of the trolls, they, they come forth from their, from their, uh, hovels early spring. It looks like, uh, in a coordinated, confused and contradictory accusation. I would be in fact, the first monarchist Bolshevist, right? So if you saw the guy who made the video saying that, uh, oh, uh once again, uh, yeah, Dugan is the handler. Yeah, Dugan's my handler. Uh, and, I'm a Bolshevik Gnostic, secretly on the payroll of Putin. 
Now, you know that we did, of course, two critiques of Dugan, and we've talked about in the critiques of Dugan the positive and the negative aspects, the positive aspects being that he's one of the few geopolitical writers who does critique Darwin. We also made the point that there do seem to be Gnostic aspects of Dugan's thought, uh, and there's a kind of relativism that I think is worthy of critique. Now, we have actually read Dugan. Uh, none of these clowns have, and they don't know what they're talking about. And if you have read Dugan, then you know that my critique is correct, that he does talk about Gnostic elements at the end of uh, fourth political theory, uh, and that I'm correct in my assessment that he is also critical of Darwinism. So what could you disagree with? And the fact that someone interviews somebody does not make them a paid shill. You also can't assume that because someone interviews someone that they are working together. I have been interviewed on countless shows, some New Age, some Gnostic, some liberal, some leftist, some right-wing, some now neo-pagan, okay? Does that mean that I affirm neo-paganism because I was on a show that's neo-pagan? Of course not. How many videos and talks do I have refuting Gnosticism and neo-paganism? Countless, okay? Well, not countless, but a bunch, right? I mean, thousands, 20, 10, 20, 30,000 people have listened to these talks, right? So there's a, I mean, this is utterly patently absurd to call me a Gnostic when not even three or four months ago, I did an entire talk on St. Irenaeus's book against the Gnostics, okay? Uh, utterly ridiculous. Uh, and so most of the time, but this is the way kind of the troll network does that really relies on just kind of the passing uh, confusion, so confusion through half-truths, through through uh, white propaganda, gray propaganda, which might contain some truth. Oh, he's into orthodoxy. Well, he must be a uh, spy of the Russian government. Now, the other absurdity I want to mention about this, too, is that uh, the, are we suddenly in the alternative media sphere? Uh, have we forgotten the surveillance capabilities of the government uh, and the state? They know everything. Everything on the internet is public to them, I'm saying. So they know who you're talking to. They know who you converse with. They know who your contacts are on Skype and on Instagram and Telegram and Instant Messenger XYZ and Yo MySpace. They know how your MySpace is pimped up. Anything on the internet is known by the establishment surveillance people. And everyone knows this. So the idea that there are all of these Russian trolls everywhere or that I am some sort of uh, magical spy that can... I'm basically the greatest master spy ever because I'm at once a Bolshevik and a CIA uh, and a Zionist and a Nazi all at once, right? Total nonsense, right? The idea that I could be doing all this and that like people don't know where... Uh, you know, all the transactions are traced, right? So so there's no Russian money coming in. It's utterly retarded. No, the reason for all these attacks is because the stuff that I'm putting out is good and the material is good. And I am knocking down all those who come against these these arguments and these material this material uh, like a nuke bomb, right? I mean, the debates with the atheists, they're nuclear, right? People are are not buying atheism. And, and there's a lot of people invested in not wanting these narratives to crash. I'm the, also, I'm the only person who's out here calling out. Now, there were other websites that talked about different connections, but 
there aren't other people talking about the way that churches are subverted through foundations. How many people are talking about that? Not very With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Very many. So, yeah, of course they're going to be mad. Because I'm talking about real stuff. I'm not talking about aliens. and I'm not talking about creatures and bunkers and all that bullshit. I'm telling you about how the the world really works and I'm not just doing it. I'm doing it in a fun, effective way. Right. And that's why people are getting mad. Other people are jealous because they have 200 subscribers and we have 36,000 here. We have uh, at the website, 36,000 followers at the website, Uh, you know, 10,000 on Twitter or whatever. So, so on and so forth. So people are mad because uh, oh, I'm a boomer, and I, I I've been involved in doing apologetics since 1998. Uh, you know, and the guy didn't even know what my position on Thomas and Aquinas was. Right? He says that I'm. This guy says, "Oh, you're you're a Thomist. You, you argue like a Thomist." So then people send him the countless talks against Thomism, and he says, "Oh, you're you're you must be part of the Romanides cult." So then they send people send him the critique of Romanides, and he says, "Oh, well, you must just be a Calvinist then." So these people have no idea what they're talking about. They don't have a clue. These people aren't trained in philosophy. <laughs> they're not trained in logic and rhetoric and debate. I am. Now, I don't think that ultimately academic training is that big of a deal. But if you notice that sometimes I don't take debates and I don't engage with people who operate this way, this is why. Because if you've not taken philosophy, if you're not trained in philosophy, then you don't know how to conduct formal debates. You don't have to conduct actual debates. Now you might say, well, but you weren't always perfect and nice in all your debates. Yeah, because if it's blood sports, no, I'm not going to be perfect and nice because that's that's more of an entertainment style of debate. That's not a formal debate. When it was Kokesh, that was a formal debate. Timed replies, timed responses, Q&A and crossfire. Right? Uh, Worski Live, not a formal debate. Come on. Now, at other times, or so in other words, the audience, the context, that's going to determine, right, when it's going to be what. Now, we have tried to set up some other debates this week with people who actually would matter and who would be worth debating, like Dr. Robertson Jennis. So there was some discussion of the possibility of debating him. Now, think about it. What am I going to put my time into? Am I going to put my time into debating clowns in a trailer park, uh, another clown in the trailer park that created his own little cult, his flat earth cult. Uh, am I going to debate a, a guy in another trailer park in Minnesota 
who is in a five-person jurisdiction who excommunicates people in another five-person jurisdiction. No, I'm not going to waste my time debating any clowns of that of that stature who literally just make videos bitching about the intro music. Now, the intro music, by the way, is not made by me. That's made by, uh, it started as a joke, by the way. I'm in a joke about Dire Wave, and they started making Dire Wave. And it's called Synthwave. It's Retrowave. It's only one of the hottest things on the internets of the last five years that the boomer crowd doesn't get. It's just a weird aesthetic, dude. Right? It's like vaporwave. It's kind of a critique on throwaway pop culture. Right? It's dystopian. It's anti-consumer. Right? It's it's while it's consumerist. Right? That's the point of vaporwave. That's the point of synthwave. It, it's 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 critique of critique. At least that's what it was kind of when it started. There's a great documentary on Vaporwave I recommend watching online if you can find it on YouTube. All right. So, of course, a boomer doesn't get that. Boomers are humorless and they're, you know, whatever. But now if it's going to, if it's somebody like RC apologist, of course, I'm not necessarily going to take that dude too seriously. Right. That guy's arguments were terrible. Uh, and if you're going to descend in the debate to being ridiculous, then no, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to take ask yourself seriously. Right with his goofy debates. But now if it's somebody who, with a PhD, somebody who uh, is, you know, a respectable argument type of guy, you know, I would obviously have much more respect for somebody like Dr. Robertson Jenis. Uh, and we talked about, well, somebody who was messaging him, I wasn't messaging him directly, but there was a guy saying, Hey, would you debate him on the filioque? Uh, and I think I'm told at least his response was, I said, no, it needs to be absolute simplicity. And so uh, he wanted to just de- debate the filioque. Well, I don't think you can just debate the filioque straight out. I mean, I've studied that topic for 10 years, and I know how the debate goes, and the filioque is built on absolute simplicity. That's the real root of the filioque, not uh, let's you know look at this church father and see if he's talking about uh, the filioque. Uh, oh, is it economic? Uh, is it, uh, you know, in what sense is he using it? Uh, economic sending of the spirit or the hype study origin, right? So anyway, you'll notice again, all of the accusations this week were completely retarded. And again, the establishment, the system, they already know who you're talking to, right? They know who works for who. They know who's affiliated with who. If you look at the times that any actual Russian spies were ever busted, like, you know, it happens every now and then. They're running some little operation, you know, in New Jersey where there's like 10, 10 Russian spy ring caught and busted. Okay. There's absolutely no large-scale media operation in my neck of the woods <laughs> that I'm part of that's some Russian spy ring. I've never been to Russia. Uh, I know a Russian analyst named Mark Hackard. We've done many shows together. Do you think that that people don't know who Mark Hackard is. Do you think that he, he puts his material out there? He's written for Tacky's mag in the past. You think people don't know who he is utterly ridiculous. Uh, Patrick Henningsen openly works for RT, right? You're not, uh, you're not sleuthing some, some, some powerful, magical, you know, journalistic award through figuring out that, uh, Patrick Henningsen works for RT when he's on fricking RT every other day. Okay. It's just stupid. Um, so 
What else do we want to talk about? Now, one of these sites, by the way, that was engaged in, I'm not going to say what the site is, but uh, actually was engaged in constant harassment and attacks for the last two years. Uh, one of these individuals, by the way, is now no longer with us, who spent most of his time attacking me. He has moved on, uh, and now that website has moved from being a flat-earth neo-Nazi site, yes, that constantly attacked Jay's analysis, to now becoming an Aryan spirituality KKK uh, vegan site. So let's look at the quality of the opponent of of the of the attackers. Let's look at the credibility of the people that <laughs> attack the stuff that we do. Okay, I mean, we work with people who have literally met with Assad and who've worked in Assyria, in Syria with Assad. Okay, Vanessa Bealey did that. Uh, I went to the UK and I spoke with Patrick and other people in the UK alternative media. Very well-known people. All right, Ian Crane, people like that. Uh, do you think these aren't known people? Of course they're known, right? Uh, I've been in that documentary with Oliver Stone and Sean Stone. Do you think that people don't know who Oliver Stone is and who Sean Stone is? Do, do you think that, that all of this would be going on, that it would be making a TV show with Jay Widener at Gaia, that it would be on Amazon and that it would be on, uh, you know, all these different streaming sites uh, if, I was a, if I was a Russian agent and if I was working with any of these clowns? Of course not. Don't you think they would have, in the, in the run-up to trying to find somebody that, that – they could pin some Russian spying on. Don't you think they would have trotted out people? Of course they would have. I mean, somewhat with the Trump thing. What's the best they came up with? Roger Stone and uh, Jerome Corsi. Have I ever had any connection with Roger Stone and Jerome Corsi? No, of course not. So it's, it's, it's all just nonsense. And you'll notice, though, but what I'm trying to get at is that the mainstream fake narrative is the exact same ones that they that the troll networks borrow from. They borrow from the mainstream media, New York times type narratives, and they just rehash them. And they come up with all this nonsense that, that if you go to, you know, this or that church, like, you know, Americans are dumb. So they think that, that if you go to a Russian Orthodox church, you're a bunch of Russian spies as if the entire Russia, as if the entire American government doesn't spy on everybody in the Russian churches. Of course they know who's going to a Russian church. This is ridiculous. Come on. <laughs> it's just so dumb. Um, anyway, so we will be taking super chats, but I wanted to point out that most of the time troublemakers, uh, are people that will be in these non-canonical troublemaker, 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 shit stirrer circles the cauldron of shit stirring known as the wandering bishop circles. now when i was attending the latin mass back in my 20s when i was a trad catholic i was introduced to this idea it was all new to me i don't know anything about this crazy stuff uh because of course the set of a contest world much of it traces its lineage in their kind of legalistic magical view of sacramental validity to these consecrations of these creepers and kooks in the world of set of contism. Somebody like uh, Bishop uh, Nigo, uh, Archbishop Ngo Din Tuk, right? And this is the Tuk line of consecration for the set of a contest. Now, funny, uh, interesting 
little tidbit, Bishop Tuke went from being an advocate of, I think, women in the priesthood to magically a set of a contest. So one of the things that sets orthodoxy over against all this kind of stuff is that there's not a magical view of the sacraments. You don't magically retain some priesthood that gives you magical powers uh, uh, just because you went through some rite, right? And we don't believe that. Uh, that is the legalism of the Roman ex operate view. And it's quite foolish, actually, because it leads to the stupid conclusion that uh, Satanists will actually go and try to get valid ordination from a validly ordained uh, priest, even if they're a set of a contest, so that they can confect the Eucharist, so that they can blaspheme it. This is how retarded this is. Like, literally, if a set of a contest who had valid orders ordains a Satanist so that the Satanist can go and confect the Eucharist, so that he can desecrate it, it's all valid. That is utterly ridiculous. That is nothing but magical nonsense. No. So the Orthodox view is neither Donatist nor ex opere operato. It's holistic. You have to be in the faith, and you have to also uh, go through the rites. But the rites aren't magical. There's no magical uh, indelible mark that's put on the soul through uh, the rite of ordination that, that gives you the that Jesus is always present, confecting the Eucharist with, through you, even if you become a Satanist. That's utterly ridiculous. And that only became the norm after the Frankish period in the West, right? When you had the split of the East and the West. Anyway, so uh, if you are in the circles of wandering bishops and kooks, and again, the Episcopi Vagantes world is essentially like that of alt media in the sense that much of it is, and again, there's sincere people in these worlds that are, are duped, right? Uh, but you'll most of the time found, find that the leader, the guru, uh, is a crook, a shady person, and falls under all of the categories that I listed in my cult video. And you can find plenty of people who went into this world uh, now I did. I did at one time know a set of a contest priest, and I one time went to a set of a contest mass. Uh, so I can speak with some familiarity with that world. Uh, but uh, no, I will know. You might as well just uh, uh, stay home, right? I mean, if 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 you live somewhere where your canonical church is so corrupt that you can't go, you might as well stay home and and do what you can, uh, you know, in, in your own home at your own hearth your own icon altar rather than be involved in this world of spooks, kooks and crooks, because that's all that world is. And I assure you of that much of the alternative media world is spooks, kooks and crooks. So we can't fault people for being suspicious, but again, most of the time, if you watch people, uh, what you'll see their development over time and over the years, Usually within one to two years, it becomes evident if somebody is a phony. Uh, if they're phony balonies, you'll have maybe a year or two-year period where they put out a lot of truth, and then they go crazy. Then they light the fire, right? Then it goes batshit crazy, right? You're going from, oh, let's look at flat earth, and maybe flat earth's true. And a year and a half, two years later, it's, oh, there's, you know, Hitler was correct, and there's bases, and you know, we're going to start a new uh, Reich or some nonsense like this, all of which is completely stupid. Uh, 
But that's also another technique that feds or plants or literal lunatics will do is they will lead you down a garden path. They'll start you with a little bit of this and they'll talk about a lot of truth. And so, and then, you know, you can look at the history of cases of the way that militia groups have worked, right? And militias are nothing but a bunch of retards who are duped by the feds all the time. Just like the people who get into the Klan, just like the people who get into the Black Panthers, just like the people who get into the neo-Confederate groups, they're all being duped. And yes, many of those people are just sincere, they're idealistic, uh, and they're dupes. Just like the people who are used in the radical mosques, they're dupes. How long have we been talking about that? The entire time we've been here doing this. <laughs> so don't listen to any of these clowns that try to tell you that that's not true. I know it's true. I have studied it for a long time. I wrote a thesis on it. I know how it works. And again, we cover it in detail in this video that Hesher and I did, where I hosted Sunday Wire, uh, where we talked about the means and methods of how groups are co-opted and, and how they're used. Now, again, why do you think I'm not involved in any of these dumb political groups? Why do you think I don't go into Because I know how this works. I'm not 20. <laughs> I've been watching these things for 10, 12, 13 years. Right. I remember the old days of Patriot Radio in the 90s. Now, I didn't really get into Patriot Radio, uh, but I watched that world. I saw that world a little bit when it was getting going. Pat Con. Are you familiar with Pat Con? OK, this was a psyop. Now, Pat Con comes out of the Cold War and there was this idea during the Cold War. Well, we'll, we'll beam, you know, kind of like Radio Liberty, this kind of stuff. And in Europe, you had Voice of Liberty, Radio Liberty. That was the CIA stuff during the Cold War to beam the message, you know, of Western market liberty and all that uh, into the Soviet sphere. And in the U.S., there was a similar idea <clears throat> of uh, counterintelligence through PatCon in terms of the Patriot Radio, right? Patriot Radio. The whole Patriot Radio world comes out of CIA PatCon conspiracy. So in a way, the entire conspiracy world actually comes out of the CIA PatCon, you know, commie threat type thing, right? So, you know, in the Cold War, it was all conspiracies, right? It was, if you were in the Marxist leftist camp, it was the capitalists are conspiring, you know, to, to control everybody through the class warfare, right? And if you were in the right wing capitalist side of things, the Alan Dulles, you know, all this kind of stuff, oh, it's the, you know, the commies are everywhere and they're going to take over. Uh, we better have... Uh, Pat Con radio beaming and blasting, uh, you know, the patriotic message of, of whatever anti-communist stuff. Now I'm not saying that communism is true. I'm not saying that capitalism is true. As you know, this is another reason people are uh, too shallow to fathom the complexity and the nuance of what we talk about here, which is very easy to figure out if you're at, uh, even in the slightest bit aware of the last 300 years of Western civilizational development and Eurasian civilizational development, which is that both capitalism and communism and socialism are atheistic. Can you figure that out? Can you figure out that when I say that, that doesn't mean that I'm a communist. That doesn't mean that I'm a socialist. It doesn't mean that I'm a fascist. It doesn't mean that I'm a Marxist. It means that I'm not any of those. Is, it, is that very hard to figure out? Uh, can the boomer tier people figure that out? That, that maybe all of those three systems are wrong? Is that, could that even be possible? 
Well, actually, for most of the boomer tier people, Cold Warrior types. And by the way, my family is a bunch of Cold Warriors. My uncle was a big time Cold Warrior. Okay, so so the idea that I would be a Russian spy is all the more ridiculous. Oh, now we caught him. Now he's CIA. <laughs> What if I'm, maybe I'm like a, maybe I'm Rhodesian intelligence. Maybe I'm, maybe it's a wild card. You don't even know. And it's just some like, Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. African Republic that recruited me when I was in college, and I worked for Rhodesia's intelligence. And I just happened to be like the best Rhodesian, Congo, Liberian spy of all time. You know, why does it have to be like, it's like, it's like there's only, there's only KGB. There's only CIA. What about uh, the the vast Rhodesian spy? I'm a swallow for the Rhodesian spy network. I seduce uh, Beyonce for the Rhodesian Liberian spy network. Anyway, so look, we've been here for how long talking about the same stuff? Years, okay? Vast archives of material, vast archives of dozens, hundreds of interviews, pretty much saying the same stuff. Yeah, I've learned some new things in the last year or two, and I'm sure in the next five years I'll learn some things. But overall, the message has not been that different. Now, a lot of the the Eurasian geopolitical stuff I didn't know three or four years ago when I was blogging, which I, that's why I was focusing a lot on philosophy and movies back then. And because I branched out, because I found that stuff interesting, we, what did we do? What did we do? Did we run to Putin to get a job? No. What did we do? We started doing our own stuff. Yes. Could you imagine that I actually just read the books and talk about them myself? Right. Do you think I would want to work for a news outlet that is going to tell me what I can and can't say, what I can and can't do? No. Don't you think I prefer? Have you not figured out my psychology enough to know that I want to do what I do, that I want to be my own boss? Right. I mean, a little bit of psychology would tell you if uh, I'm willing to go out there and debate JF, Spencer, any of them, right? then I'm probably not the kind of person who just wants to suck up and find some stupid corporate job. Of course not. So now is that the psychological profile of a person who wants to suck it up to some foreign government who's going to tell them what they can and can't say? No. That's why I do my own show. (laughs) That's why I do what I do. That's why I don't talk about Darwinism as if it's the greatest thing in the world. If I was a sellout, 
the first thing I would sell out about is Darwinism because nobody believes in creation, dummies. It's a no-brainer. So, none of those people would actually dare have a real debate, right? And that's why they're not even worth interacting with. And like the great PewDiePie says, when your YouTube channel is growing, the trolls get the snowing. (laughs) It's time to snow them trolls, ignore them, right? Uh, Once the YouTube channel starts growing, guess what? Magically, clowns start reaching out. Oh, the clowns want to talk to you and they want to do a show with me. Come on my show. Oh, and if you won't do it, oh, now I hate you and now you're a spy. You're a shill. Uh, Yeah, well... Number one, I've done this long enough that I can peg who a person is. I know where they're going to take things, how they're going to act after watching them interact for a little while. And by the way, if you find a lot of you will find that, yes, it is a little harder to get in touch with me because now every time that I interact with somebody, it becomes a liability. If I don't do everything perfectly to the, to, to the satisfaction of anybody that I interact with, they lose their shit, they get mad and they go on a campaign to try to you know, denounce you or whatever, right? Really sensitive people, really, really damaged, hurt people or whatever. And I get the craziest damn emails on the planet. You can imagine. Can you imagine the emails that come to me and what people say, right? I mean, every day there's somebody emailing me, oh, I'm a targeted individual. I come out of, you know, CIA mind control project, uh, you know, booble, bobble, feeble, zobble, and I'm from the underground base. And it's like, come on, right? And then I have to deal with all these other kooks so it's a very weird job uh and if you find me being a bit curt a bit a bit curt (laughs) if you find me being a bit curt uh it's because i have to uh, completely expel the gaseous trolls from my body from my body politic so anyway um, yes, let's move on to, yeah, I'm going to assume that you guys did look at the Episcopi Vacantes world there, and you'll find that it's a bunch of clowns, a bunch of kooks. Don't waste your time in that world unless you are a glutton for punishment. Uh, if you're a glutton for punishment, have fun. See you later. You're going to wish that you hadn't gone into that world. Um, let's move on to the real meat of the discussion I want to add too that uh, some people also point out that oh you you all you do is attack people, you you attack people, really, really when ninety percent of the content and material is lecturing on other people's globalist books, on scripture texts, on ancient philosophy, on modern and medieval philosophy, really when that's ninety percent of the content movies movie analysis, let's see let's count them up. There's a critique of Stefan Molyneux. There's a critique of Father Stephen Freeman. There's a critique of Jordan B. Peterson. There's a critique of crazy Bartholomew, the patriarch of Constantinople. And long ago, there was a critique of Joe Atwell. So that makes five critiques in years of blogging or video making, producing, right? And out of what? Over a thousand posts at the website and over, uh, I think I have seven or 800 videos including the audios that are on YouTube, right? That, so that's five or six out of that? Come on, get out of here. I'm not always attacking people. Number one, a critique is not an attack. 
if I critique Jordan Peterson, remember when I did that? His whole cult said, you're attacking Jordan Peterson. A critique is not an attack, goofus. In fact, I can't think of any of these videos that are an attack. What is an attack? How do you verbally attack someone? Right. No. In every one of the videos, what we did was a point-by-point response or critique. That is not a an attack in our hypersensitive world. Now, and you will also find, yes, I am quick to block nowadays. I ain't going, ain't, gonna, ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time. Ain't nobody got time. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yes, quick to block. Why would I want to spend, I have limited time during the day. Why would I want to spend it talking to dumb trolls? So let's get on to this, this meaty essay here. And I spend about Athanasius is really clear. He teaches absolute simplicity. Uh, No, he doesn't. (laughs) If you were familiar with the entire scope of the argument that he has with the Arians, then you would know that it's the Arians that teach absolute simplicity. And the fact that Athanasius distinguishes the will of God and the essence of God and the fact that creation is different from generation would let you know that that undercuts his whole argument if you think he taught absolute simplicity. And that's what I prove in my essay, which largely, yes, relies on the argumentation of, and I'll put it in the chat, Father Florovsky. Right. Father Florovsky wrote a famous essay about Athanasius' conception of creation. And of course, uh, Father Flawowski is one of the most famous uh, Orthodox theologians of the 20th century and part of the neopatristic synthesis, right? One of the solid Orthodox guys who wanted to make sure that we were in line with the church fathers and not adopting the modern higher critical Roman Catholic leftist blah, blah, blah positions on approaching scripture and tradition. Very well known. Everybody knows who Father Florovsky is. Uh, Staniloy, Florovsky, Wolski, right? Who do you think we, who do we lecture from and constantly reaffirm here? Those kind of guys. Exactly. Because there's not a whole lot of modern Orthodox theologians that are that great. A handful, right? Generally the ones that are dead. (laughs) Not the living ones. Beware of them. Uh, And so... I will include that link to that famous paper underneath my essay. It's also linked in the essay, which is, uh, again, Athanasius on the Doctrine of Creation. And what Father Florovsky demonstrates very clearly, lucidly, and eloquently as a premier Orthodox scholar is that the Athanasian distinction between generation and creation was already commonly accepted in the church at his own time. And that is, in fact, the Arians who borrowed the argument of origin. Because origin had a pretty strong argument about the subordination of the sun. This is also why it's ridiculous for these clowns to try to resurrect origin. Origin is a heretic. <laughs> He's not just condemned because of debate over apocatastasis. 
He's condemned over multiple councils for multiple reasons. He's condemned for absolute simplicity. He's condemned for reincarnation. He's condemned for the subordination of the son. He's condemned because he thinks that there are eternal recurring falls because of his doctrine of simplicity. Okay, so Origen is not just some debatable great theologian. No, he's a crucial heretic. He cut his balls off. He's not a saint. You can't cut your balls off. What lunatic cuts his balls off? Lunatics cut their balls off, right? He's a cuck. The the acuckatostasis, more like it. So if we look at this essay, and I start out by, of course, we will have a little bit of reading too from the uh, book by uh, John Meindorf, which is a good introduction to, just an introduction, just a good introduction, uh, Gray Palamas and Orthodox Spirituality, because he, of course, he, he does contrast here, as some of these clowns have said, oh, uh, the Palamite tradition is yoga. You guys do yoga. What idiocy? What idiocy? It's not yoga. And Meyendorf is good on that because he explains how we don't do yoga. It's not yoga, dude. St. Seraphim Rose has a whole book against yoga. And he, come on, this is ridiculous. To call this yoga is just total nonsense. And Meyendorf states the philosophical objection that St. Gregory Palamas was introducing a second and lower God besides the Godhead. Palamas replied over and over and over that is that, that that's not correct. No multiplicity of divine manifestations or energies could affect the unity of God because God is beyond all the categories of wholes and parts. And that's directly out of Dionysius, Areopagite, and the divine names. We did a whole lecture on that. The unity of God and these categories are not defined according to human philosophic terms. In God's essence, he remains unknowable always, but he, he reveals himself wholly in each energy as the living God. So God is wholly present in his energies, even if it's the energy of providence, right? And you say, well, what if, if love and providence and mercy are distinct attributes, then how is God wholly present in each one? That's why it's a mystery, bro. That's why it's a revealed doctrine and not a philosophic doctrine. We don't believe it because of the law of non-contradiction applying to the divine essence like the trads want to do. We believe it because it's revealed as so. And that's what I demonstrate in that essay. So I point out in studying the development of Orthodox triadology from Athanasius onward, confusion can arise by not understanding the overall context of his opponents and their argumentation. This is the crucial aspect to Father Florovsky's essay on the generation of the sun. In fact, most are unaware that the Arians who opposed Athanasius did not do so on the basis of some word like homoousius, but in fact, there was an even more subtle argument that the Arians argued the Son was a product of the will or energy of the Father. That would make the Son a work of the Father. As such, given the simplicity of the Father God, according to the Arians, because they thought that the Father God was the same as the simple essence of God, There could be no real distinction between father and son without introducing a division or composition. Do you see that? Do you see that? Right away. The assumption here is a distinction entails division or composition. That's what all the heretics say. Indeed, absolute definitional simplicity is the presuppositional basis for both Origen and the Arians and where they base their objections. 
This is covered in numerous Orthodox works, all hammered out so constantly and consistently that for any Orthodox person to disagree with is utterly absurd. Right? Free choice in Maximus Cavessor, God History Dialectic, uh, Father Stan Eloy's Orthodox Dogmatics, Volume 1, the works of Father Florovsky, right? all very clear on the notion of uh, creation and the divine energies and God's unity and simplicity. Also in the triads. How many, we already did a whole lecture on the triads, didn't we? Of course we did. We did a whole lecture on Lossky. Lossky covers this. However, some will sever a section of Athanasius out of the context of his work, De Decretis, intent on proving that Athanasius taught absolute divine simplicity in the Thomistic sense, right? Anachronistically trying to prove that Athanasius taught what Thomas teaches. We're going to show how absurd this is. Not only is this absurd given the entire context of the anti-Arian works being intent on refuting the doctrine of Hellenic philosophic simplicity, we will see that St. Athanasius's proof text paragraph actually refutes them. All right, it's actually a proof for us. From there, we will move on to looking at how the doctrine of God's processions and manifestation developed in precision. So there is a development, for example, from the time of Athanasius into Basil, Gregory, and Gregory. Right? The Cappadocians do develop the theology of the Trinity of person, nature, essence, energy. Right? If you read Basil's letter 38, Basil's letter 234, Obviously, they develop. Right? If you've read the theological orations of St. Gregory Nazianzus, it develops. If you've read against Eunomius, it has developed. Does development mean Cardinal Newman's evolution of dogma? No, it does not. It just simply means a further precision of the truth already present. So let's look at this paragraph here that is supposedly the knockdown proof. And we will kind of try to uh, work through it. And I will take you through this essay to the beautiful conclusions. And you will see my point. So here's Data Creatus 22, which is going to be supposedly the proof that Athanasius taught absolute divine simplicity in the exact same way as Thomas Aquinas. Okay. So he says, if any man conceives God to be compound or an accident in his essence, uh, as in essence, or to have any external envelopment and to be encompassed as if there is anything about him which completes his essence, you see. Now, what did Gregory, uh, uh, what does St. Gregory Palamas say? Did he say that the energies complete God? No, he said God is wholly present in every one of his energies. Right? So, that when we say the name God, or when we say the name Father, that we do not signify the invisible, comprehensible essence, but something about it. Okay. Now, does that when he's saying that, is he contradicting what St. Basil will say in letter 234 or what Dionysius says in the divine names that when we speak of the attributes of God, we signify something about him? No, he's not responding to Basil in the essence energy distinction. He's responding to Arians who think that the sun, right, would be a completion of God or a further addition to God. You see, this is not the same thing as essence energy distinction. This is about the sun having a subordinate status, right? You have to understand the opponents and what their argument is. And the opponent's argument is that the name God and Father are absolutely simple and identical to this one essence of Godhood 
the unbegotten, right? And therefore, if the son is distinct, then he must be an operation or a work or a will from this simple essence of father. Now, if you've not read in depth into the Arian controversy, you wouldn't know that. Most people don't know what the actual basis of the Arian argument is. They just know that, oh, Athanasius refuted the Arians, and he said homoousius as opposed to homoousius, right? Of the same essence as the father uh, and not of like essence as the father, right? But that's not the totality of the... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Debate. If it was, then Athanasius wouldn't have written hundreds of pages on this debate, but he did. But look what he says. He says, the name God and Father... By these, we do not signify uh, that we we basically do signify the essence of God and not something about it that completes it, as he said above. Uh, Then let them complain that the Council of Nicaea stated that the Son was from the essence of God. But let them reflect that in thus considering... Now, wait a minute. Let's stop here for a second. Is the Son from the essence of God in the sense that the common Godhead generates Jesus? Of course not. Right? And he's going to actually explain this in a second the common godhead the common nature doesn't doesn't generate anybody because that would mean that jesus generates himself that would mean that the holy spirit generates jesus because they all share the the common same nature nobody believes that so first of all their attempt to use this text actually makes athanasius say something completely ridiculous that nobody believes right so the fact that that they want to try to use this to mean that the Son is generated from the essence of God. St. Athanasius goes on here. What does he say? No, he's generated from the essence of the Father. Look what he says. Therefore, skip down a little bit. Well, actually, let's just read through. If God is simple, and he is, it follows that saying God and naming Father, we name nothing as if about him, but signify his essence itself. For though to comprehend what the essence of God is is impossible, yet if we understand that God is, and as Scripture indicates him by means of these titles, we, with the intention of indicating him and none else, call him God and Father and Lord. For when he says, I am that I am, I am the Lord God, Exodus 3, when Scripture says that, God, we understand that nothing else by it other than the intimation of his incomprehensible essence itself, and that he is who is spoken of. Oh, now wait a minute. Now, when Basil goes to great pains to argue against the Hellenists, and he says that God could not say I'm super essence, right? That's, he's saying the same thing that Basil says, right? It's not it is, it's he is. But it's not false to call God supreme existence. And it's not false to say that the energies of God are natural, 
They are, they are natural energies. They are energies proper to the divine nature, right? We said this over and over and over in the section on Christology when we covered St. John Damascus on Christology. But that's not impersonal essentialism. And it's not comprehending the essence of God to define it, you see. So this is an apophatic statement about the essence of God as single and that each person fully instantiates the essence of God. And that's going to be St. Cyril's term in hypostatized. That's why that's so important at Ephesus. It's because essence doesn't exist in abstract. It always exists in the mode or in the tropos of persons, which we covered in the lectures. So Jesus isn't, isn't generated from the common essence of the Godhead. Uh, it is proper to speak of Father, Son, or Spirit as God, and all three of them are God, right? So the term God can refer to Father, Son, or Spirit, or it can refer to the Trinity in toto. And it, given the fact that each one of the divine persons fully instantiates the divine nature, they're not lacking in it, right? The Son doesn't have 75% deity. The Holy Spirit doesn't have 85% deity. No, they're all fully divine. So they all wholly instantiate, W-H-O-L-L-Y, instantiate the divine nature. And this is the consistent teaching of all the Eastern Fathers. There should be no question about this. In fact, the perichoresis, which is the doctrine of the divine indwelling, also proves this, right? The Holy Spirit and the Father fully indwell the Son. The Son fully indwells the Father, as does the Holy Spirit. Right? So obviously that means then that any time you were to talk about any single person of the Godhead and you were to say the Son is God, uh, it, it is perfectly fine, right? as long as you understand the context, to understand that that is not a strict identification of nature and person. And that's how all these heretics would have it mean. They would have it mean Sabellianism or modalism, which is utterly ridiculous. That's not what it means. And that's because Jesus isn't generated from some generic essence or the common essence of the Godhead. It's, uh, he's generated from the sole arche and cause of the Godhead, the Father. Right? The Son of God is from the essence of the Father. And again, if we were to say God is the existent one, and we were to say that Exodus 3.14 is a statement about supreme existence, that's fine, as long as we understand that it means He is and not it is, not some super uh, essential, impersonal essence. That's what St. Basil specifically rejects, especially when he talks about using the Greek terms for a personal, he is, not it is, he is. If we say that God is the one, is that wrong? Well, it's not wrong if I mean that there's only one God, but it is wrong if I mean that the numerical number one is absolutely strictly identical to God. It's not. God is not identical to the numeral one, obviously, right? So in the same way, you have to understand any predicate of God in this same way. And that's what Athanasius is clear to say when he says that though we comprehend the essence of God, though it is impossible to comprehend the essence of God, uh, if we yet if we only understand that God is by, by these titles. So in other words, none of these titles are definitional right? Essence, nature, goodness, God, 
loving, merciful, provident, wise. None of those are definitional of the divine nature because the divine nature supersedes any singular definition. That's why we believe in apophatic theology. However, that doesn't mean that when you name one of the persons that you are not fully naming a fully divine person, that you're not fully naming God. In other words, if I say Jesus, right? I can say I'm naming nothing else than the divine nature when I name Jesus. Does that mean that Jesus is not a distinct person? Then that, that means Sabellianism? No, of course not. Right. So in other words, you can't take that statement to mean that nature is identical to person or that all the attributes are identical to one another. And that's what Thomism and absolute simplicity do, right? So this is a fully orthodox definition of divine simplicity. Again, how many times did we stress, even in the, I talked about the usage of Aristotle uh, and the terminology of Aristotle in St. John Damascus's book when we covered that. We did the lectures on, on the orthodox faith, right? He says there's no accidents in God. God's not compounded. And I said, yes, of course, we believe that. Every church father talks about divine simplicity. Of course they do. This paragraph in Data Cretus 22 is perfectly consonant with orthodox statements on the unicity of God. But let's move on and see what the problem is. Now, if you heard my talks, then you know, again, this is covered in the defense of the orthodox faith. There's absolutely no sense in which God is compounded. He contains no accidents, no form, no division or composition. And that's why St. Gregor Palamas says the exact same thing. And he gives the same definition of St. Athanasius as to what God's simplicity is. What none of these fathers do, however, is give an absolute definitional sense to simplicity in which all of God's actions are synonymous and isomorphically identified with the absolutely simple essence. So remember when we talked about nature and person? Remember when we talked about inhypostatized? That comes into play here because if I were to say, when I name Jay Dyer, I name nothing else than human nature itself. Is that a true statement? Yes. Does that mean that my personhood of being Jay is smashed into the common nature of humanity by making that statement? Of course not. But it's not false to say with the is of predication that Jay is human nature. It's not false to say that Jesus is the divine nature. As long as we understand that that's not an isomorphic identification. And when he says we name nothing else, all he's trying to do is illustrate rhetorically that the Arians are wrong because they don't think that Jesus has the divine nature. And he doesn't posit a generation or a spiration from the common essence. He posits a generation from the Father. And that's why St. Gregory Nazianzus, directly after him, says that everything that the Father has, the Son has, except for being the sole cause. That's why there's not a double procession of the Holy Spirit. That's why there's no filioque, because there's only one cause, and it's personal. It's the Father. For us, there is one God, the Father. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. That's the meaning of the creed. That's why all the heretics don't even have the creed right. So let's move on to more of this to make this clear about my point about how we predicate of God. By the way, what Athanasius says there, you will notice that it's actually worded very similar to things that are in Dionysius as well. And Dionysius obviously teaches the essence-energy distinction, right? Nobody denies that, right? He talks about, uh, you can both say that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are 
the divine nature, but they're also hypostatic and they're also unique and distinct. And that's not a contradiction because composition does not, excuse me, distinction does not entail composition or division. So let's move on here about Athanasius. So we know then that he's not saying that when he says that, that when we talk about God, we're not speaking about something else other than the divine nature. He says that this is, my, my argument goes on to say that this is used to distinguish not a person or an energy between the father and the son. There's no, there's no, uh, willing the father doesn't counsel whether he will generate the son. The father doesn't will, Oh, I will will my son into existence. Right. Because that would mean that their essences are different. No. St. Athanasius argues that the son is said not merely to be generated from the common essence of the Godhead, which would mean he generated himself, which is absurd, but rather the son is gener- generated eternally from the father's essence. Right? It is the father that is the sole arche and source and cause of the Godhead. And we will see this very clearly as we move into Basil's letters on this topic. Furthermore, not even Roman Catholics think that the son generated himself, which is absurd. And therefore, it is a fallacious for Roman Catholic apologists to misuse this passage in such a ridiculous way, such that it means that the common essence of the Godhead is what generated the Son. This is precisely the root cause of all the Orthodox arguments against Roman Catholic views in this matter, because they replace a personal father as the sole source, fount, and arche of the Godhead, and introduce an impersonal, super-simple, definitional essentialism that generates and spirates. In fact, Meyendorf in the book covers that. Uh, as Barlam's argument, right? When Gregor Palamas debates Barlam, it's about this essentialism. This was the root of St. Phocius's mystagogy critique as well, long ago, who called attention to this heresy and correctly located the problem of the double static, double hypostatic procession by introducing essentialism. The, fa- the son takes on the father's role of being cause, as a co-cause of the spirit. Thirdly, we come to the more useful section Uh, for their error, that is, in this Athanasius section, which is the attribution of the Father and the Son to the divine essence. Not only is this an orthodox doctrine, but those that are in error, they mislead by simple word usage and lack of nuance. Uh, We have stressed many times that in order to grasp the distinction between nature and person in God and in man, it is necessary was the mode or tropos in which nature exists. Because we do not know Excuse me, because we do not introduce impersonalism or uh, essentialism into our theology, it is crucial to understand that the mode in which nature exists is in persons, in hypostases, in hypostatized. So in patristic theology, this eventually becomes dogmatized after Ephesus. Okay, Athanasius is before Ephesus. And this statement is true of both God and man, and angels too, if you want to be precise, because God and human nature does not exist in an abstract, but only in the mode of persons. This is why we don't approach God first and foremost as a simple super philosophic essence or a substance or a monad or an abstracted nature, but as God the Father, as a divine person. This is the whole argument of Dimitri Staniloy's Orthodox Dogmatics, Volume 1. However, does that mean that it's incorrect to speak of God as one or monad or existence or supreme nature? Of course not. The fathers commonly and frequently do so. In fact, there is a theological oration of St. Gregor Nazianzus where he says that I am signifies that he is the existent one. And then he goes on to say, but guess what? 
There's no beatific vision because you will never see that essence. So the very text that's also in St. Gregory Nazianzus that Roman Catholics will rip out to try to prove absolute divine simplicity and the beatific vision, they lie because he goes on to say that you will never see that essence. And I will pull that up for you. So once again, just like with with this, it's the rip it out of context. And this is an essay I wrote a long time ago that actually I had forgotten I wrote uh, because he shows that the analogia entis is not correct. And he, he goes on, St. Gregory goes on to say that, yeah, God is the supreme existent one and his nature is unknowable and you will never see it. You will never see the divine essence. And that is quoted very clearly in my essay. Oh, I forgot cut the, cut the title off of it. Gregory Nazianzus versus the Thomistic Analogia Entis. I wrote this in 2010. Again, I've been at this for a long time. So once again, just like with Athanasius, what the Roman Catholics will do is they will rip the statement out of St. Gregory Nazianzus, which I'm about to show you. And they'll say, oh, look, he says that uh, I am means... I am supreme existence. Yeah. Did you read the rest of what he said? (laughs) What does he say? The divine nature cannot be apprehended by human reason. And we cannot even represent it to ourselves in all of our great and all of its greatness. St. Gregory discusses the concept of the old Testament theophanies in this oration. Let's see which oration this is. This is, uh, the five theological orations, all of which, by the way, should be read. Um, he says that when uh, Moses saw God, right, he saw not the divine essence, but the goodness of God. He's talking to Moses here. I saw not the first unmingled nature known to itself, to the Trinity, I mean, not that which abides within the first veil and is hidden by the cherubim, but only that nature or energy which at last reaches out to us. Okay, so he's talking about Moses and being shadowed in the rock in Exodus 33:23. Then he goes on in paragraph 5 and he says... Uh, this nature is uh, unlimited. Far before them is that which is that divine nature which is above them all and out of which all creatures spring, the un- uncomprehensible and illimitable, not, I mean, as to the fact of his being, but as to his nature. So the existence of God is not the exact same thing as the essence of God. In fact, God's existence is itself one of the energies. And he goes on to say that no teacher will ever admit or say that you can see the divine essence. Oh, wait. Aquinas says you can. Anyway, you can go read that essay. But we're not here mainly to talk about that. It's just another side point. It's another one of those things that they'll kind of rip out of context. But let's get back to the essay here. Um about this data credus section 
because as I continue here, So when we predicate of God, it is not incorrect to say God is the supremely existent one, God is one, God is truth, God is love, but none of those things are definitional, and they're not equated with the divine essence, obviously. And as Basil says, you're a fool if you think they are. If you think mercy, foreknowledge, and the action of creating the world are all the exact same. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are a fool. It's not me talking. That's what Basil says. Now, if we were to use my uh, analogy I gave earlier which is, again, straight out of Basil's letter 38, which we'll get to in a minute. If I were to say that uh, J is an example of human nature, I could also say J is nothing else than human nature, right? The statement itself is not incorrect, right? I am an example of human nature. And for rhetorical flair, I can say that I'm nothing else than human nature. You say, but wait a minute. Athanasius isn't just using rhetorical flair. He says that, that that is the divine essence. No, he doesn't. He says, we do not define the divine essence. So you would make him contradicting within the exact same paragraph when he makes these claims. If you make him to say that calling God G-O-D is a definition of the divine essence, right? That's what absolute divine simplicity does is that it falls down on the horns of a dilemma either way. On the one hand, if you believe in the via negativa and apophatic theology, then you're not actually naming God, you're just naming created effects of God. So the name God, what is it applying to? Right? If you think that you are actually experiencing God, then you have to believe the divine essence is somehow spilling out into created existence, which no, no Roman Catholic believes that. They all believe it's created effects. Right? That's what the creaturely analogies and the analogia entis is about. So you're not naming the divine essence, you're not naming God, because you're not actually experiencing God. You're experiencing created effects of God. So then how do you know what you're naming is correctly named? Well, you don't, right? That's why St. Gregory Palamas said to Barlam, your whole view leads to atheism. And it did lead to atheism because all of the enlightenment people who followed these dumb classical arguments from natural theology said, we're not actually naming a deity that can be known. We're naming created effects. And if all the names of the created effects are all synonymous with one another, then it doesn't matter whether we talk about God's justice, God's mercy, God's love, because they're all the same and they all blend into meaninglessness. Right? So that's one way to cut the error. The other way to cut the error is to say, oh, if we do define God's essence as love, then if it's absolutely simple and it's love and it's also eternal and it's also creation, or excuse me, God's essence is to be a creator, then he's eternally a loving creator. And he eternally created creation. And creation is a direct eternal mirror to the divine essence. There's no way around that. That was Origen's argument. Do you see? And because that was Origen's argument, the Arians expanded on that. And they said, you know what? Uh, Origen isn't right about everything. But one thing he's right about is that what's the difference between generating the sun and creating the world? If God is eternally the father and he's eternally the father of the son, 
And he's also by essence creator, right? Remember all of these descriptors are definitional definitions of the divine essence. Then he's eternally creating the world just as much as he's eternally generating the sun. That's the whole Aryan argument right there based on what? Absolute simplicity. Yeah, but you didn't know that, did you? No, you started attacking, you started talking shit and you had no idea what you were talking about. Literally a lot of the, the critics out there and no idea. They haven't read this famous essay on Athanasius and creation. They haven't realized that their stupid argument undercuts the entire argument against the Arians. The entire argument is over whether the sun is different from the eternal generation. Of the sun is different from creation. That's the argument. But they don't even know that. These people have no idea what they're talking about. So as we move on here in my critique, and we're gonna we're gonna lay this to rest, dude. We're gonna put this. This is we're gonna annihilate this. Just wait. So in patristic theology. Again, we talked about inhypostatize, right? This becomes dogmatic after Ephesus. So there is a development in the Cappadocians that builds on Athanasius. And so while Athanasius will talk about the difference between God's essence and his counsel or will, right? Uh, it's St. Cyril of Alexandria who specifically begins to talk about the divine energies, right? At the time of Ephesus, basing it on the way the Cappadocians talked about it. Right. And St. Basil, everybody knows St. Basil talks about the essence energy distinction in letter 234. So there is a development, right? Not a development of new theology, but of clarity, right? Because again, the essence energy distinction is in Paul. It's in the Bible. So while the distinctions, for example, if I were to say J is an instantiation of human nature, right? While the distinction can be made between my common humanity that I share with others, and because I'm a singular person, J, the mode in which nature exists in me is hypostatic as a person, right? There's no abstract human nature. I mean, human nature is universal, but it's always instantiated in some person, in me, in you, in Bob, Bill Cosby, and whoever. In God, the fathers argued, there is a similarity. This is directly from letter 38 of Basil. Except the difference is that, obviously, in God, there's one nature and three persons, right? Humans aren't that way. As we will see, Basil uses this analogy in letter 238. So given that God, that in God the divine nature exists in the mode of persons, and given the doctrine of perichoresis, the divine indwelling, and given that each divine person is wholly divine, there is nothing wrong with saying when we speak of the Son, we name nothing other than divine nature. We are speaking of inhypostatization, as St. Cyril of Alexandria would later term it. However, that statement is not an isomorphic absolute identification, because the strict identification would then lead to modalism or sabellianism. We noted that St. Athanasius correctly affirms in the very next sentence the doctrine of God's essence or nature being unknowable and undefinable. So obviously it's not definitional, because he would be contradicting himself within three sentences. Beyond that, so there are some who might be new to this topic and would be surprised to learn that St. Gregory Palamas affirmed that the energies of God are fully and wholly the divine nature too. 
It is a misunderstanding of Orthodox theology and terminology to assume that number one, distinction implies division or composition, or that number two, the uncreated energies are not fully divine and do not fully and wholly contain God. Indeed, not only is this obvious from the doctrine of perichoresis, but also from the fact that the unity of God is in no way severed or ever compartmentalized. When we speak of the ability of God to truly manifest uh, in real in really manifest in time and space, in a theophany, or in the incarnation, or in one of his divine energies, we simply do not set up a definitional opposition or dialectic as the heretics do. All of our opponents and all the heretics of the councils set up dialectical oppositions, whether it was the originists and their simplicity doctrines from Plato, resulting in a dialectic between movement and stasis, or whether it was Nestorius and his dialectic between the Son of God and Jesus of Nazareth, or whether it's the monothelites and their dialectical tension between God's will and energy and the human will and energy in Christ, all heresies are premised on the underlying presupposition of definitional opposition, natural tension. What is amazing to me is that every solid work of modern Orthodox theology, from Father Florovsky to Father Steniloy to Lossky, all hammer home this exact same point that I am making to you and have made for years now ad nauseum. And even many in the Orthodox world don't grasp or see its import. In summation, I reiterate, there's nothing wrong with saying that the Son is the divine nature, as is the Father. And if you say that my analogy is false between human nature and divine nature and human persons and divine persons, then go read letter 38 of Basil who says the exact same thing. To demonstrate the equality of persons, so long as we understand that the Father and the Son are truly distinct and that the divine essence is not a modalistic black hole that negates all distinctions. That is why we don't believe in absolute divine simplicity as it is clearly defined in the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia. Now, I know what Thomas says, and this is a perfect explication of the Thomistic doctrine. There's no debate about it. Any basic writing on Thomas will tell you this. So don't come to me and say, well, the Catholic Encyclopedia is not infallible. The Catholic Encyclopedia is not infallible. I don't care if it's infallible or not, because this is a accurate statement of what Thomistic simplicity means. And to think that after centuries and centuries, the Catholic Encyclopedia can't even get right what simplicity is, is utterly retarded. What is it? It is true that no single predicate is adequate or exhaustive to describe the infinite perfection of God, and that we need a, to employ a multitude of predicates, uh, as if at first sight infinity could be repeat, reached by multiplication. But at the same time, we rec- recognize that this is not so, being repugnant to divine simplicity. And that while truth, goodness, wisdom, holiness, and all the attributes, as we conceive and define them, express perfections that are formally distinct, yet as applied to God, they are all ultimately identical in meaning and describe the same reality the one infinite, perfect, simple being. Indeed, divine knowledge itself is really identical with the divine essence, as are all the attributes of God. That is not what Athanasius is saying. Athanasius is not saying that every single attribute of God is absolutely identical to all the other attributes and absolutely identical to the divine essence. He is saying, when you say Jesus, Jesus is fully divine. You're naming the divine essence when you say Jesus, because he's just as divine as the Father. That is not the same thing as saying all of the attributes of God are absolutely identical in meaning and absolutely identical to the divine essence and absolutely identical to the actions of God. That is a much more radical statement, completely different, and that's why it's called absolute divine simplicity and not divine simplicity.
I mean, I've looked at this for 10 years. Don't you think I know what the basic doctrine of simplicity is? Anybody can go, it would take them two minutes to Google at the Catholic Encyclopedia what simplicity is. This is it. It's right here. How many Denzinger quotes does it take to show that this is the Roman Catholic dogma? I wrote a whole essay on it. Roman Catholic absolute divine simplicity refuted. And I cited dogmas, 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 dogmas. I mean, is it, is any Roman Catholic actually going to say that the Catholic Encyclopedia is wrong on this? That that's not the Thomistic and dogmatic? Right? We don't really care whether it's Thomas's dogma. What matters is whether it's the Roman Catholic dogma. And it is. This is the Roman Catholic dogma. They did accept the Thomistic view. Okay. There's no, this is not, there's not, there's no debate about this. Okay. That is not what Athanasius says. And one reason that we know that's not what Athanasius says is because Athanasius's whole argument against the Arians is that there's a distinction between God's will and counsel and God's essence. And this dumb doctrine says there's not. This doctrine leads you to perennialism. This doctrine is why many of your Vatican II theologians don't believe in the deity of Christ. This is why they believe that there's such a thing as Chrislam. This is why all the religions are interchangeable masks for the great supermonad. Because of this. Because of what the Catholic Encyclopedia says about the absolute super simple essence. And St. Gregor Palamas was right hundreds of years ago, to say that this dumb doctrine leads to atheism. And guess what? It did. It absolutely did. The whole West became atheist. How many times do I have to make this clear? And by the way, uh, a former seminarian this week who has spent the last several months studying this said, I got it, Jay. It clicked. I see it. And once he read the disputation with Pyrrhus, and he saw it applied to Christology, he said, this is it. I get it now. And yes, he left Trad Catholicism Seminary and is now Orthodox. Because he sees this now. Once it clicks, it's over. This dumb doctrine is done. And you realize it's just stupid Aryan, I mean, eunomianism. Now, wait a minute, eunomianism. Well, let's look and see what the Eunomian doctrine was. Because all this is, is a variant on Eunomianism. The Eunomians were more radical Arians. They said the Arians weren't radical enough because they got the simplicity right, but they're not taking it to its logical conclusion. We Eunomians will. And what did they say? Now, this is, again, the Catholic Encyclopedia explaining the system of eunomius. And guess what? It's going to say that all the attributes are identical to one another. What we just freaking read about Thomism. The dogmatic system of eunomius was characterized at once by the presumptions of dialectics. Uh-oh. Have you, have you heard me say that? Maybe once or a million times? It was also shallow. Yeah, just like the Thomist. His errors concerning Christ are founded upon his erroneous theodicy, which involves the assertion that a God of simplicity cannot be a God of mystery. Actually, that's exactly what Roman Catholic Thomists say to me when they start pulling out syllogisms about the divine essence. I kid you not. Trying to argue me with syllogisms about contradictions within the divine essence when we say that God's actions are distinct from his essence. 
this is exactly what ADS adherents do. They argue that dialectics and that there is no way for God to be both one and to have distinctions at once as this violates the law of non-contradiction. I probably had 20 Thomas to make that stupid argument to me for every, for even man as, as competent as God to comprehend the simplicity. This is what the eunomian said here. Uh, the, they are more consistent than the proponents of ADS because they understand that even an analogical statement about the divine essence, if ADS is true, still requires actual definitional knowledge. Yep, exactly. That was the point I just made earlier about you could fall down on two sides of this error. You could say that you don't name or know any of the attributes of God, really, because you're just naming created effects of God within time and space. Or you could fall on the other side of the error and say that your definitional sense of naming God is actually naming the divine essence. Either one of those is stupid and heretical, right? One of them is pagan. One of them is deistic. And that's because you don't have the essence energy distinction. Eunomius proclaims that it's proclaims the absolute intelligibility of the divine essence. Eunomius said, God knows no more of his own substance than we do, nor is this more known to him than less to us. And whatever we know about the divine substance, that is precisely known to God. On the other hand, whatever he knows, the same as also you will find in us without any difference. Agonisia, he maintains, perfectly expresses the divine essence as unbegotten. So the definition of the, of the divine essence is to be unbegotten. God, as an absolutely simple being, an act of generation would then re- require or involve a contradiction in his essence by introducing a duality into the Godhead. Now, here's my note. Note the crucial example. The foolish misunderstanding of the Roman Catholic absolute divine simplicity and proponent would have Eunomius and St. Athanasius saying the same thing, that we can affirmatively name the divine essence in a definitional sense. <laughs> the only difference is that the Roman Catholic ADS proponent uh, would want to define it as son or simple, etc., while Eunomius wants to define the divine essence as the unbegotten. The lunacy resides in the fact that both systems contradict themselves. My argument against the Thomas is not that they are never correct or that they don't make true statements at times, but that the doctrines contradict themselves. The Catholic Encyclopedia continues, The father is agenitos, the son genitos. Hence, Eunomius held there must be a diversity of substances. Why is that? Because his absolute simplicity required that distinction means composition. Exactly what these idiots are these idiots are arguing to me. The general line of this sophistical reasoning against the Catholics was as follows. You allow agonisia to be a divine attribute. Now the simplicity of God excludes all multiplicity of attributes. Consequently, agonisia is the only attribute which allow which you which benefits excuse me, which befits the divine nature. And therefore, it is the only one that is essential to him. In other words, God is essentially incapable of being begotten, right? Because he's, his essence is defined as unbegotten. Hence, it is folly to speak of God begotten and of a uh, unbegotten and of a son also begotten. The one God, Agenitos, is also anarchos and un, unbegotten and without beginning in Eunomis' system. And therefore, he could not communicate his own substance or beget even a consubstantial son, as Athanasius would say, right? Consequently, there would be no question of identity of substance or of likeness of substance between father and the son. There could be no essential resemblance, but at most a moral resemblance, right? This is what Nestorius would say, right, about Jesus. The Jesus, son of Nazareth, was morally united to the son of God. 
For the Son is being drawn forth from nothing by the will of the Father. So Jesus is created out of nothing by the will of the Father, right? And by the way, the Roman Catholics. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To say that the Spirit is a product of the will of God, the will of the Son and the Father, which is the Arian argument applied to the Holy Spirit. The Arian argument of the Son applied to the Spirit, by the way. Yet superior to all creation in as much as that he alone was created by the one God to be the creator of the world. Get this part. So he does not share in the incommunicable divine essence, Lucia, but he does partake in the communicable divine power, the energies. <laughs> now here's the Catholic Encyclopedia on eunomianism admitting here that the debate revolves in part around the essence energy distinction. All right. And of course, Eunomius, what the heretic said that, oh, Jesus participates in the divine creative energy of God. Now, anybody that's read Basil and Nyssa against Eunomius knows that the argument is not to refute Eunomius, is not to deny the essence energy distinction. It's on the basis of the essence energy distinction, dummies. The idiocy of the Roman Catholic fanatics knows no bounds. The refutation of Eunomius from Basil to Gregor Nyssa relies not on denying the essence energy distinction, but in formulating it. Not only that, the theological implications for both of the sacraments, excuse me, for both of the sacraments at Ephesus with Cyril and Christ at the Sixth Council would be expounded along the lines concerning the uncreated energies, right? This is what these stupid Thomists keep saying to me about how the doctrine of the essence and energy distinction has nothing to do with Christology and the sacraments. Uh, yeah, it does. If you read the anathemas of Ephesus, and then the anathemas of the monothelites, it's on the fact it's on the basis of the fact that the sacraments participate in the uncreated energies in the same way that Christ's humanity participates in the uncreated energies. There's no other way to be orthodox and to have proper Christology than to understand that in the incarnation, Christ's human nature was raised by the uncreated divine power and energy, just as the sacraments are transformed by this same divine uncreated power. That's the argument of Cyril. The power of the divine, this power is obviously not the absolutely simple essence of God. And no Roman Catholic actually believes that the human nature of Christ participates in the essence of God. They also don't believe that it's, that the sacraments are literally the essence of God. That's retarded. In fact, the Catholic encyclopedia even admits the error of Eunomius was that the son only participates in one divine energy, showing an admission of the essence energy distinction while failing to admit the saints Basil and Gregory refute Eunomius by explicating and defining the essence energy distinction insofar as the son shares the same energy and power as the father and the spirit. We covered this in the John Damascus lectures. There's both one energy in God because of one nature and multiple energies of God because God works many different works. Before we move on to St. Basil, we want to cover the point that Father Florovsky makes in his paper on the topic, looking at the controversy as a whole, by showing that St. Athanasius was, in fact, one of the first fathers to explicate the clear doctrine of the essence-energy distinction. Yes, this refutes the entire stupid argument. Because there's a difference between 
God as creator and God as eternal generator of the sun. Obviously, because the sun's not a creature. There's a difference between God's will and actions in relation to his eternal attributes like love and glory and attributes that relate to creation like providence. This is the ultimate refutation of these heresies, of these dum-dums, because they actually think that providence is the same as being creator and is the same as being eternal. If it is, then there's an eternal creation. That's the Aryan origin argument. This alone is enough to completely disprove absolute simplicity, since origin argued that absolute simplicity means that the attributes of God to be meaningful must be synonymous and equal with the divine essence. If that's the case, then providence must be eternal, since it's just another predicate of this simple eternal essence. And if providence is eternal, then God must have an eternal creation to be provident over. Many similar absurd arguments can also be formulated to show the stupidity of equating all of the attributes, such as arguing that walking on water, which is a divine power, is literally the same divine action as creating the world and literally the same action as destroying the world. That is the conclusion of the stupid Roman Catholic Catholic doctrine that all the attributes are exactly the same and all the actions of God are exactly the same as the divine essence. And that is the doctrine. Make no mistake about it. Let's remind ourselves, what is the doctrine? As applied to God, they are all identical in meaning, and they all describe the same reality. The one infinitely perfect, simple being. Indeed, divine knowledge itself is identical with the divine essence, as are all of the attributes. Can you read? Can you see that? I know you idolatrize the system. I know. I know it's an idol. I know. It's so elegant. Oh, Thomas is so great. I know. I was an idolater of Thomism as well. And then I realized this is an idol. The system is stupid. It doesn't work. Yes, it says some true things. But it's built on sand. It's false. It leads to these dumb originistic conclusions if it was consistent. Let me rehearse that for you. This alone is enough to disprove absolute Thomistic Roman Catholic dogmatic simplicity. Because it means that the attributes of God to be meaningful must be synonymous with the divine essence. If that is the case, then providence is the same thing as being eternal. Providence is eternal. If it's to be meaningful. It's the same thing as being creator. So God is an eternally provident creator, if the terms have any meaning. If God is an eternally provident creator, then there's an eternal creation that he's eternally provident over. If creation is eternal, there's no distinction between the eternal son and creation. That alone destroys absolute divine simplicity. That alone. Now, there's a hundred different ways that you could cut this argument to show how stupid it is. But that alone is enough. Because it's wrapped itself into a stupid philosophic box based on Hellenic assumptions. What's the Hellenic assumption? That distinction entails division or composition. That the simplicity must mean what the Greek philosopher said it means. That's it. That's the whole root of the problem. Now let's look at what Father Florovsky says in his masterful essay, further showing the nonsense of this view, particularly about Athanasius. 
This is the argument. Read the essay and you'll see how dumb it is to, to wrench that paragraph of De Decretis out of the context of the entire argument, which is, which is premised on refuting ADS. That's how dumb this is. It's unbelievable. You know, these people lay a trap for themselves with their own mouth. That's, that's what's funny about this. Father Florovsky writes, the case of origin is explicit, uh, especially significant. He failed to distinguish between the ontological and cosmological dimensions. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what the Roman Catholic ADS proponents do. In their arguments for the filioque proof texting, what do they say? They say that the hypostatic origin of the persons, the eternal manifestation of the spirit, and the sending of the spirit into the world are all the same thing. They all prove one another. And that the Roman Catholics don't even make this distinction. They're always confused. So the filioque and the eternal creation challenge show the root of both of these problems to be absolute divine simplicity. That's why I said, if I'm going to debate Syngenis, it has to be on this, because this is the root of Filioque. As Bolotov has aptly stated, the logical link between the generation of the sun and the existence of the world was not yet broken in the speculation of origin. It can even be contended that this very link uh, has been rather reinforced in origin's thinking. The ultimate question for origin was precisely this. Is it possible or permissible to think of God without also thinking of him as creator? Well, if absolute simplicity is true, then no, it's not, because all the attributes are exactly the same and equal to the divine essence. We just read that five times in a row. Have you already forgotten? Have you forgotten? Thomas, have you forgotten? The negative answer to this question for origin was only to de-out. <laughs> An opposite assumption would be sheer blasphemy. God could never be thought of as anything other than an essential creator, right? His very essence is to be creator. There is nothing simply potential in God's being. Everything is actualized eternally. That means creation was necessary. This was Origen's basic assumption and his deepest conviction. God is always Father and the Father of the Only Begotten, and the Son is co-eternal with the Father. Any other assumption would have been compromised of the essential immutability of the divine being. But God is also always the Creator and the Lord. Indeed, if God is eternal Creator at all, and it is an article of faith that he is the Lord creator, we must necessarily assume that he was always creator and Lord. For obviously God never advances or changes, right? So remember, one of Origen's other heresies is to set up this, this false philosophic assumption that heaven and God are pure stasis, and movement and change and being are characteristics of fallen creatures. The fall is a movement away from stasis. This is a heresy. This is Platonism. That's not creation, okay? The Confession of St. Sophronius, which is part of the Sixth Council, condemns Origen on the basis of his creation heresy, his rejection of it. That's another reason why you can't believe Originism if you're Orthodox. And when you point this out to so-called Orthodox, what do they say? They say, I don't care. I don't care what the Council said. You are a piece of crap. That's what they said to me. Yeah, exactly. Because they're not Orthodox, doesn't matter what you costume you wear and how you pretend. If you don't believe the right things, you're not orthodox. There is no nothing simply potential in God's being. Everything is... Wait, we got to scoot down here. For obviously God never advances. For origin, this implied inevitably, inevitably the an eternal actualization of the world's existence. Note that above, the Catholic Encyclopedia admitted that God's creation... And knowledge of the world was based on God's knowledge of the eternal platonic forms in his essence. This is an argument I've made for years to Roman Catholics and Thomists, and not one of them yet has grasped this point. This again shows that they have the exact same presuppositions as origin. 
of all the things over which God might preside. Uh, wait, let's see. Origen himself used the term Pantocrator, uh, which he borrowed from the Septuagint. If Pantocrator, which means almighty, uh, is a definition of God's essence, then God has to eternally be Pantocrator or over some creation. That means creation is eternal. Do you see how dumb this is? Right. If the predicates of absolute simplicity are true, then it leads to these stupid originistic conclusions. If the predicates do not name anything correctly or analogically, then you're an atheist, as Palma said. It's either or. God could not be Pantocrator eternally unless Ta Panta also existed from eternity, that is, creation. God's might must have been eternally actualized over some created cosmos for all eternity. Therefore, God, to be an eternal creator, must have an eternal creation. This is the Platonic doctrine. This is the dumb Platonic doctrine. And so-called Orthodox people are trying to argue with me that this is not heresy. Yes, it is. David Bentley Hart says this is not heresy. David Bentley Hart is a heretic. He says origin is great. This is the argument against the Arians. It's the same argument from origin regurgitated in a different form. If you read Florovsky's essay, it's clear. And not only that, this refutes the stupidity of trying to make Athanasius into a proponent of absolute divine simplicity. So let's get to that part next. Okay, so let's move down to where Florovsky is actually treating of <clears throat> Athanasius. And we'll see this very clear. Actually, this was all great. I mean, that, this all worked out. Per, I couldn't have asked for this to work better to show how stupid these doctrines are. I mean, these people like laid out the most... The, one of the best ways to disprove them. I could have even asked for it. Thank you guys, by the way. Thank you all you clowns out there for uh, setting me up with very easy things to destroy. <clears throat> Florovsky says, God is much more than just creator. When we call God a father, we mean this is where he's treating of the Aryan thing, right? So he moves on from origin to the Aryans. Before God creates all at all, Poloi Paturon, he is father, and he creates through his sons. For the Arians, God was no more than a cre- creator and shaper of creatures, argued St. Athanasius. They did not admit in God anything that was superior to his will, Huperkamenon. But obviously, being precedes will, and generation, accordingly, surpasses will. So, of course, it is but a logical error. There's no temporal sequence in the divine being in life. Yet this logical order has an ontological significance. Trinitarian names denote the very character of God, his very being. They were, as it were, ontological names. There are, in fact, two different sets of names that can be used of God. One set names, a set of names refer to God's actions or deeds, that is, to his will and his counsel. The other to God's own nature or essence and being. St. Athanasius insisted that these two sets of names had to be formally and consistently distinguished. And again, it was more so not it was more than just a logical or mental distinction. There was a distinction in the reality itself. God is what he is, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is an ultimate reality, declared and manifested in the scriptures. But creation is a deed, an action, a product of the action of the divine will. 
And this will is common and identical to all three persons in that God. Thus, God's fatherhood must necessarily precede his action or role as creator. For absolute divine simplicity proponents, that is not true, obviously. The Son's existence flows eternally from the very essence of the Father, which I just covered above, and or rather it belongs to this essence or usia. The world's existence, however, is external to God and to this divine essence and is grounded only in the divine will, that it will to be so. God wills to create. There is an element of, element of contingency to the exercise and disclosure of God's creative will as much as his will reflects his own essence and character. On the other hand, there is, as it were, an absolute necessity in the Trinitarian being of God, right? In other words, the eternal generation of the Son is necessary. It could not be otherwise. Creation could be otherwise, right? So that's why there's a distinction between creating and generating. But if absolute divine simplicity is true, there's not. Because being creator is eternal just as much as generating the sun. If creation is an eternal generation, then the sun is a creation. Or they're both eternal, eternally generated. Either way, it doesn't matter. Both are heresy. On the other hand, uh, the absolute... Okay, so, so what does he mean by necessity in God? Well, he just means that God's nature can't be other than what it is, right? God is always holy. He's always eternally generating the Son and eternally spirating the Spirit. It can't be otherwise. He can't not generate the Son, right? So in that sense, there's a necessity to that. God doesn't choose his own being, Father Florovsky goes on to say, right? That, But if we make... If we equate the action of being creator or the attribute of being creator with eternal or eternality, then God is eternally the creator. And there's an eternal creation that he's creator over and provident over and father over. And then if we speak of the son as eternally generated, then creation is just another eternal generation like the son. There's no difference. That's why we have to make a distinction between the ontological categories of God, right? and the categories that apply to him as creator. And this is a distinction that absolute divine simplicity negates. It precludes. It makes impossible. You cannot believe that and believe in absolute divine simplicity in the sense that we just saw above. Again, do I need to read it for the seventh time for you to point out that you can't that if you're a Thomist or a Roman Catholic, you have to believe that all the divine attributes are exactly identical to one another. How many times do I have to repeat that? How many times does that have to be shown? Now, what does Florovsky make as his final point? If we follow along with these idiots who've wrenched this paragraph out of context, the whole argument against the Arians is undercut. Because they would have Athanasius being a Thomistic absolute simplicity proponent. His whole reputation of origin of Arianism depends ultimately on the basic distinction between essence and will, which alone could establish clearly a real distinction between generation and creating. The Trinitarian vision and the concept of creation and the thought of Athanasius belong clearly and organically together. 
The entire argument of Athanasius against the Arian, against the Son being a creature produced by the will or energy of God is predicated on a real distinction between God's essence, actions, and willing. What could be more idiotic and stupid than thinking that the whole context of the argument against the Arians doesn't matter, and that all that matters is lifting the paragraph out as a proof text? To add insult to this injury, I also showed in a separate essay last year that the confused doctrine of ADS and Roman Catholicism also leads to the spirit being a product of will. So they're just confused on all this. Amazingly, it's the exact same argument that the Arians used and based on theirs and Origen's absolute simplicity doctrine as applied to the spirit instead of the sun. If anyone recalls the arguments and comments that I exchanged on Facebook with Eric Barra over the last two years, over and over and over for days, this was the whole dispute. As he also lifted a similar passage from St. Athanasius to talk about the Son as if Jesus was literally and isomorphically identified with the common will of God. This is how ridiculous this stuff gets, right? So Athanasius says at one point that the Son is the will of the Father, right? Does that mean that the Son is absolutely isomorphically identified with the common will of God? No, that's utterly ridiculous. And Roman Catholics don't, well, actually they do believe that because they, they confuse all these things together. But as we'll see, not only is Eric Ibarra wrong, uh, but all of these Roman Catholics who misuse this stuff are wrong because they're confused. Right? They're trying to mash together a bunch of different things that don't make sense that are actually harmonized in the, in the Eastern Fathers. So anyway, I talked about, I'm going to skip the part about, if you want to, you can go read this on your own, but I wrote an essay that, that did really well that prompted a lot of this last year. Um, the, that how the filioque doctrine is the Arian argument about Jesus, but they applied it to the spirit and that got like a thousand shares and it's on ortho Christian. It's on a bunch of different places. And actually this, this essay alone, uh, started a lot of people converting, but then what happened was, Oh, uh, Eric Ibarra said, uh, just like the the data Cretus, uh, paragraph taken out of context. Oh, but look, Athanasius says the son is the, the will and wisdom and power of the father. Yeah. That's called manifestation, right? Uh, that doesn't mean they're isomorphically identified. Okay. Jesus is not literally the will of God and the spirit is not the product of the father and son's will. That's retarded. Okay. But that's literally what Ludwig Ott says. The Roman dogma is okay, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Let's get back to this discourse with the uh, debate about the Arians. One last part about uh, Florovsky here before we quit. The Florovsky part. And yes, we will be taking Super Chats very soon. I'm coming here to the end of this, near the end. Uh, we want to we want to lay all this to rest though. We're not gonna we're not gonna leave these clowns any room to to get around any of this. We are going to put the nail in the coffin. So in the latter parts of the di- part of the discourse, Saint Athanasius discusses a great lengthy Arian contention that uh, the Son was begotten by the will and deliberation del- deliberation of the Father. These terms uh, protest Saint Athanasius are out of place. The Arians simply attempt to hide their heresy. Hold on a second. I got to plug the computer in. It's starting to die.
Arians simply attempt to hide their heresy under the cover of ambiguous words. St. Athanasius suggests that they borrow their ideas from the Gnostics. Interesting. Yeah, because uh, the doctrine of absolute simplicity is Platonic, and Platonic doctrines are the root of Gnostic doctrines. St. Athanasius contends that the Arians claim that the will and deliberation of the Father precedes the generation of the Word. We'll skip down. We already read this kind of stuff. St. Athanasius retorts that only shows their inability to grasp the difference between the being and acting in God. Thus, absolute divine simplicity is not true, clowns. God does not deliberate with himself about his actions and his own being and existence. Indeed, it would be absurd to contend that God's goodness and mercy are just voluntary habit and not a part of his nature. Thus, absolute divine simplicity is not true. But does it mean that God is good and merciful unwillingly? Now, what is by nature is higher than that which is by deliberation. The Son being the offspring of the Father's own substance, the Father does not deliberate about this, since it would mean that deliberation about his own being. God is the Father of his Son by nature and not by will. Whatever is created, however, is indeed created by the goodwill and deliberation of God, by God's free will. But the Son is not a deed of his will like creatures but by nature, offspring of the Father's own substance, God the Father. It is, an, it is insane and extravagant to put the idea of will and counsel between the Father and the Son, according to St. Athanasius. And one last quote here with Florovsky, and we'll be done with this. I think we need to talk about eternal manifestation, too. Lorofsky continues, the, <clears throat> the Athanasian distinction between generation and creation with all of its implications was already commonly accepted in the church in his time. Can you hear that? But a bit later, St. Cyril of Alexandria simply repeated his great predecessor. In his thesaurus, St. Cyril depended heavily upon the Athanasian discourses. Only instead of using will and de- deliberation, guess what? St. Cyril spoke of the divine energies. Note here, the Roman Catholic ADS proponent is shown to be completely ignorant and confused. This is a devastating point that absolutely none of them t- touch on. Finally, John Damascus, in his great exposition of the faith, repeated St. Cyril. Yeah, of course he did. That's why we just covered it in four lectures. Go listen to that. For we hold that is from him, from the Father's nature, the Son was generated. And unless we grant that the Son coexists from the beginning with the Father, by whom he was begotten, we introduce change into the Father's subsistence. Because not being the Father, he subsequently became the Father, right? So again, St. John's just making the same argument as Athanasius. This antithesis, right, uh, is one of the main distinctive marks of Eastern theology. This antithesis is one of the main distinctive marks of Orthodox theology. And that is is what every Roman Catholic fails to understand or believe, that it was systematically elaborated once more in late Byzantine theology, in the theology of, guess who, St. Gregory Palamas. Exactly. That's why we have the true tradition here. We are the real inheritors of this correct tradition, not them, not the Roman Catholics, not Thomism, not the doctrine that all the attributes are exactly the same and identical, because it leads to Arianism dummies. It leads to Sabellianism. It leads to modalism, to originism. St. Gregory contended that unless a clear distinction is made between the essence and the energy of God, one could not distinguish between generation and creation. Yeah, that's the whole argument we've been talking about for three hours now. And once again, this was emphasized by St. Mark of Ephesus. 
That's why St. Mark of Ephesus is a saint, and he's not ecumenist Bartholomew of Ephesus. He's a saint because he stood for the essence energy distinction and not for the reunion council. That's why he's a saint. It was a true Athanasian motive on the part of St. Mark of Ephesus. Yes, that's why we're not Roman Catholic. And that's why all the clown ecumenists want to be Roman Catholic because they don't believe this. They don't believe what we're talking about here. Now, the question arises in the distinction between being and acting, right? There cannot be any slightest doubt that for Athanasius, the distinction between the willing of God and the being and essence of God are a real ontological distinction. So you literally just made a clown fool out of yourself because the entire argument, thank you for handing that to me. Match, serve. You just handed to me the fact that you missed the entire context of the argument of Athanasius against the Arians for wrenching out a paragraph proof text that is perfectly an orthodox statement of divine simplicity, and you missed the whole argument and undercut it by trying to make him into a proponent of Thomism. Utterly stupid. And if these people weren't so nasty, I wouldn't be so forceful in replying to them. But they're motivated by pride, greed, whatever. And this, by the way, not only does it refute half the clowns that came out this last week, it also refutes Eric Ibarra and it refutes Dr. Taylor Marshall because they don't know any of this and they don't talk about any of this. That's why you need to go read letter 38 of Basil, which I go into in the next section of my essay. And he talks about nature and person and will and hypostasis and all that in the exact same way that I do. And when you read that, you'll see, you know what? Jay was saying the exact same thing Basil's saying. And you know what? The Roman Catholics never taught me this. I see it right here before my eyes in Basil. Why didn't they talk about this? Basil's making all the same distinctions Jay did in letter 38. In letter 234, he makes the essence-energy distinction. How come my, uh, my priests, who claim to be the holders of all divine truth and similitude and blah, 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 when they're not participating in interfaith chrysalom services, why didn't they tell me about this? Oh, 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 because they haven't actually read that. That's why. They haven't read Basil. You think that you think your priest has read Basil? Now maybe you have a priest who's a specialist in Basil. Maybe there's a few of those, but I'll guarantee you most of them have no idea what we're talking about here. They have no clue what any of this stuff. They don't know what the essence energy distinction means. I would venture to say ninety percent of Roman Catholic priests have no idea what this is, even though they went to their eight years of gay seminary. They don't know what this is. What are you talking about? But I know what it is. And every, that, and the reason why people are getting so mad is because this is right. That's why they're getting mad. Now, in the rest of my, my essay, I go on to talk about the Council of Blackrene, which is one of the medieval, quote, Palamite synods that confirmed the doctrine of eternal manifestation. Now, this is a whole other Trinitarian aspect of things that you, you, know, you can go into in my essay. And then I, I conclude my my paper with a lengthy 
quote from the triads. Okay. And again, we did a whole talk on the triads. So I do entire talks on these books. The people who are the haters, they've never even read these books. Okay. They have no idea what they're talking about. How does Palamas to the philosophical objection, the objection that he was introducing a second lower God besides the unique Godhead. Palamas replied over and over and over that no multiplicity of divine manifestations could affect the unity of God for God is beyond the category. Now, the idiocy of the Roman Catholics is that Palamas is on their freaking calendar and they don't even know that. And then when they find that out, half of them, oh, well, that's a, that was an action after Vatican II. I don't accept that. Yeah, well, if you read John Pontrello's book, you will learn that Sativacontism uh, doesn't work because you can't believe in the office of the papacy without the living magisterium and without his actual human successors. And the uh, brief periods of interregnum have nothing in common with a 60-plus year Sativaconte. Okay, so Sativacontism collapses under the fact that you cannot believe in a Roman office of Peter that you're somehow united with when you're not actually united to anything because you're amongst a bunch of Episcopi, Vacante clowns that don't even have priests and bishops half the time. You're not, you're not united to anybody, right? Now, I can understand there being no bishop, like if, if you're in the Orthodox world and you live in like some communist country or some really corrupt country or you're in China or somewhere and you, you learn about Orthodoxy and maybe you read the Bible but you don't have any church, you know, that's one thing, right? Or maybe in America when we get forced out of the churches or something because we actually believe what the, uh, the, the last thousand years of the church said. It will be tossed out of the churches and we won't have a church. But it kind of makes sense in the Orthodox perspective because it's not a top-down system all based on the Bishop of Rome. But guess what? This doesn't make sense in the Roman Catholic system because in the Roman Catholic system, you have to be united to the Pope over in Rome, that guy. You have to be united to the living magisterium. And according to Vatican I, and according to the definitions of the papacy in the encyclicals, there's no such thing as an empty office of Peter that you're united with for many, many, many decades that doesn't have an actual successor in it. So John Pontrello is absolutely correct in his book, and this is a separate, devastating argument that completely destroys Sotovacontism. So you either have to be in union with Frank or Roman Catholicism is not true. It's just that simple, right? And you can follow however many Episcopi, Vagante, clown, kook, spooks you want, and you can drive yourself mad doing that, or you can drive yourself mad being in union with the demonic character of Frank in Rome. And what's the answer here? Well, the answer is that neither of those is true, right? But obviously, it's not, I mean, again, <laughs> you could have this idea of there not being a church or bishop much easier in orthodoxy than you could in the goofy system of Roman Catholicism, which is a complete top-down house of cards. So I have to say uh, thank you to John Pontrello. Not because I, I mean, I, I left this nonsense years ago. Thank God. Uh, but the online LARPing cult, a set of a contism, 
is pretends to be a real thing. And one of the hinges upon which this argument rests is the idea that you can separate the office of the papacy that the Sedevacantists are uh, somehow in union with, which is complete nonsense, complete made-up BS, uh, from the actual possessors of the keys in the papacy. You cannot. And John Petrello, uh devastatingly shows that in his book, The Sedevacantist Delusion, which I highly recommend for those in the clown world of Sedevacantism. Now, when I say that, I'm not telling you to go be united with Frank because Frank is poison. But uh, thank God we did. I think Pontrello did become Orthodox. So, And you'll notice he says in his book how Vatican II instead of a contism actually point the way to Orthodoxy. Yeah, they do. Um, but I do recommend the Gregory Palamas book because... Meyendorf says, makes some really great points about this is not yoga. The If you read the triads, who in their right mind could read the triads and think that that's yoga? I mean, the whole thing is just biblically sourced. <laughs> uh, and his arguments for hesychasm are uh, Paul's teachings in Corinthians about prayer in the heavens, prayer in the noose, prayer in the spirit. Doesn't have anything to do with yoga. That's not in yoga. All right. Well, we've been going for over two hours. Um, there is again more in my essay, which is linked in the description about uh, the doctrine of eternal manifestation and how that's also very important in the triads and how the distinction between creature, uh, the, the the creatorship of God, the creatorhood, God's God being creator, uh, and God as Father. Right, those those categories that Father Florovsky said from Saint Athanasius are ontological categories and categories in relationship to creation. That's a very important distinction in Orthodoxy. Again, continued in uh, all the way up into Saint Gregory Palamas, and it's only possible to have that distinction if you don't believe in absolute divine simplicity. It's only possible to have that if you believe in the essence energy distinction. If you believe according to what Saint Basil says in Letter Two Thirty Four, and Basil says if you equate all these attributes in one. You think they're all the same? He says, you're a fool. It makes nonsense of the whole religion. But it's very useful to a perennialist organization like the Vatican and Vatican II to make way for some global Gnostic religious cult where all the religions are the same. And what did Francis just do? Well, he just signed a special accord with Islam for Chrislam. So you can read the rest of my essay where I go into the doctrine of eternal manifestation. Roman Catholics have no idea what you're talking about, even though it's in the Vatican clarification on the filioque, which admits my points. That's in the rest of my essay. Uh, now we will get to the super chats. Uh, I just need <clears throat> I need a brief bit of uh, coffee. I have rambled for two and a half hours straight, nonstop hardcore. My throat's really dry, so give me about 20 seconds. I'm going to get some more coffee, and we'll read some of these Super Chats.
All right. We've got some super chats here, and feel free to send some more if you want. Support Jay's analysis. Sad Vorian, $5. Thank you, Sad. Uh, unable to find the tutoring link. It's the Patreon link. So, uh, I mean, you can either just message me directly on uh, Twitter or whatever, uh, or you can just click on the Patreon link, and you can set up tutoring that way. Uh, so at the website, there's a Patreon link. You can do it that way. So thank you for that. Send over Ian. Cole Robbie, nine ninety nine. Thank you. Uh, why exactly did Pharrell leave orthodoxy after the immense amount of work that he put into it? Did he find a flaw or did he reject it because of church drama? Have you discussed it with him? Uh, I think it was probably more of a church drama issue. Um, but you know, I don't really, go into other people's, you know, issues of of why they had problems. But I think it was probably church drama. And then, you know, he kind of preferred more platonic views of things, I guess you could say. But uh, beyond that, I don't really know. I haven't talked to him in in, uh, two or three years. So I'm not sure sure what his, where he's at now. I haven't kept up. But Meloon M, two A's. Thank you for those two A's. Can you read Slavonic? Is your spy tier too low? Yeah, see, I don't know Russian. I took German in college, and I got decent grades, A's and B's. Uh, but that was like 10 years ago, so I don't even really remember my German. So, so uh, yeah, that's another thing that dum-dums don't know. Uh, if you don't know languages, you're probably not going to be a spy. And I'm not very uh, trained, well-trained in other languages, so I'm not a very good spy in that regard. Brandon Thorpe, 20 bucks. Thank you. Save the czar. Amen, yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Brandon. Big supporter of the show. Always uh, love seeing you in the chat. Much thanks. God bless. Misty Ernst, thank you for that dollar. Appreciate that. Big ups, big ups. John Holloway, $10. Drastically off topic, but would Orthodox theocracy allow a allow and criminalize most of the films that we watch today? And is there such a thing as lying for a good cause even today like Rahab. Well, that's a topic that's, uh, you know, debated in the fathers. Uh, I don't take a legalistic view on whether there could be justified lying. Um, I think uh, there's a debate where, uh, August, uh, St. Augustine has a long debate with himself about whether there could be justified lies. And I think he comes down the conclusion, no, that you never could. Uh, I don't buy that. I think that's a little too legalistic. I think we see in scripture, um, righteous characters engaged in instances of justified subterfuge, uh, you know, where David disguises himself as a madman. <laughs> uh, you know, he does that. Uh, Samuel disguises himself, you know, so I don't think that all deception like that is wrong. Um, you know, you have spies uh, in in Israel. Spying is not always necessarily wrong um, in an Orthodox state. You know, Russia, the Russian and Byzantine state were famous for spies and espionage. Modern espionage comes out of Byzantium, actually. So I wouldn't say it's uh, completely always wrong, no. But uh, as to the movies, uh, I mean, I think that the Orthodox spectrum would probably have something similar to what the Catholic uh, Catholics had with the code, whatever that Hayes code or whatever it was. I guess ideally it would probably be something like that. But those are good questions. Uh, I don't actually know off the top of my head what the positions would have been. 
in Orthodox countries on specifics of movies. But it will be, if we can get to that point, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? If we get to the point where we could uh, try to clean up the arts, that would be a good thing. Jay Stam, thank you, Justin, for that. Ten bucks. While on the subject, do you mind commenting on them and the incessant claims of... Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. And that is what's covered very well in this uh, John Pentrello book. So I, I highly recommend the John Pentrello book. And uh, he sent it to me a long time ago, and I got a few chapters in and ended up getting distracted. And it was actually the last week I dove deeper into John's book. And I, you know, having been in the circles of the Sedas for a while back in my 20s and, and and being attracted to that argument, the, the logical aspect of it. Uh, there was a lot of problems, obviously, that I think, for me, the the difficulties in leaving it were primarily when I started looking at, you know, other theological traditions, Eastern, Eastern Church and so forth. So I, I kind of left the Roman Thomistic world uh, as a result of the essence energy question and ADS. But I had never seen the argument that John presents at the end of the book where he talks about, or towards the end actually, uh, where he talks about the fact that you actually cannot separate the office of the papacy from the other four key marks of the papacy, which is the living magisterium, right? Um, I'm going from memory. What what is he? He lists like, hold on, I'll get the book. I'll tell you what he says. Okay, let's see. Yeah, in order to maintain the state of position, you have to divorce the office, the so-called mystical, quote, office, right? Oh, oh well, because, the, uh, you know, in the interregnum period, there's no pope, so we're united to the office of the papacy just like then. That doesn't work because the actual definition of the papacy isn't just the office. It's actually the office of Peter and his successors who have the jurisdiction. And you also can't have priests everywhere without jurisdiction. That's the other thing. And that actually totally annihilates this stupid position. Uh, Where did he list these four points? Let's see here. The other point too, is the uh, indefectibility. I mean, this essentially destroys indefectibility. Uh, and I know that the, the, the Sedas all think they have a response to this, but they actually don't. Because their response is, oh, well, it's just been vacant for 60, 70 years. It'll never be. But but that's the thing. It can't be fixed. It'll never Oh, Mary's going to come and write. Uh, okay, here we go. Five key points that are dogmatic. This is page 128. Peter's primacy in the Roman dogmas is the underlying basis for the unity of the church. Okay, not just the office itself. The prim- that primacy is permanently bound to Rome. The office of the papacy is the position of the primacy. The Roman pontiff must fill and exercise that office. These points are all in a symbiotic relationship in the Roman Catholic dogma. Yeah. So you what the Tzedas have to do is invent an invisible church version of Rome, just like Protestants and Calvinists have the invisible church that they're in unison with. Uh, and they're not actually in unison with a, an actual Roman see. Right. But that's schism 101. Yeah, that's exactly what the Calvinists say. 
So you can't have unity without the actual successors and the operation of the keys and jurisdiction. All of that can only be had in unison with the successors to Peter. And that succession, according to Vatican I, does not die until the return of Christ. In Roman Catholicism, in, excuse me, in Seda, it's been dead for 60 or 70 years. And that's when the point in which they turn to an end times cult. And they say, oh, but it's the end times and that's all different. And, and it's until the end of the world. And now it's the end. No, it says until Christ returns. So they actually deny Vatican I, which is ironic. So that's another uh, key argument. Now, I had heard when I was a Seda, I had heard that point about, well, what about the the successors until the end of the world? Uh, but I thought, well, that just must mean, you know, up until the time of the end. But no, 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 it doesn't just say that. It's not just until the time of the end. That's what the Sedas have to make it be. right? And that's why they're all schismatic. By their own definition. Okay, not, I'm not saying Roman Catholicism is true. I'm saying if you're going to be a Roman Catholic, you've got to be in league with Frank. There's no other way around it. Uh, and if you're in league with Frank, you're in league with spiritual cancer. Because Frank is obviously not a Christian. And everyone can see this. So the set of a conscience are both wrong and right. And the Novus Ordos are both wrong and right. So your next question, $10, thank you. Say it does claim that the empty seat was prophesied. Uh, well, they claim that La Salette said that Rome will apostatize and become the seat of Antichrist. But this is a problem because uh, Roman Catholics are not bound to follow prophecies and revelation, first and foremost. They're bound to follow the dogmas. And the dogma of Vatican I is that the perpetual successors of Peter uh, will continue until the end, that is, the return of Christ. So here we've had 60, 70 years of no successors of Peter. So in other words, you can't reinterpret the dogma of Vatican I in that scheme according to some private revelation of La Salette. And that's what all of them do. That's why they are an end times cult. So they're just as dumb as the, peop as the people they make fun of who worship Medjugorje. Right? They call Medjugorje a false apparition. They do the exact same thing by exalting La Salette into this position of dogma. I had a Roman Catholic this week talking to me about some other dumb apparition. Like, well, you don't follow apparition. Milky tits. Uh, don't you know the milky tits appeared in 1904 in the land of Croatia? and No, come on. Get that crap out of here. You're not going to convince me with some garbage Roman Catholic superstition apparition. Get that out of here. All that stuff is nonsense. And I'm telling you, you follow that stuff, you're going you're gonna to regret it. Five, ten years from now, when you're despairing, you'll be like, Jay was right. Exodus 580, $20. Keep up the good work, Jay. Love your lectures on St. Maximus. Thank you. St. Maximus, in fact, is great to study because he's the antidote to much of this stupidity and nonsense. St. Maximus is the antidote because he shows us the cosmic scope of Christ's redemption, incarnation, resurrection and transfiguration and all the heretics in the schismatics guess what they limit the scope of christ of course they do because nobody else is saved but them them and their five bros them and their trailer park everyone else is damned that is textbook 101 schism gabriel r five dollars are the energies of god infinite uh, if yes does it place his essence beyond 
the infinite? Well, I would say that there are uh, multiple types of infinities. Uh, in fact, even mathematics shows us there are multiple types of infinities. So there are created infinites. For example, uh, a being can come to be in time and space, a creature that will continue on into infinity. Uh, amongst the medieval theologians, this was called of eternity, or the med- medieval uh, scholastics. But I don't. there's nothing wrong with that term. I think uh, St. John Damascus speaks that way. Uh, so if we think of the fact that, well, something can be created and also then be infinite, Mandelbrot sets are infinite, they're created. Um, and then there's, an, there's a special kind of infinity that God has that is his own inner infinity that we will never know. Uh, we could say yes and no. So there can be created infinities and there are uncreated infinities, I would say. Sean Hutchison, $5. Jay, after the sun takes on human nature, does the sun remain only a divine person? Oh, great question. Uh, Correct. He remains only a divine person, and that is the essence of St. Cyril's view. As Orthodox, we absolutely hold this view. And in fact, this is also important in refuting Western theology. Because whether Western theology meant to go this way or not, they did go this way. Wherein, yes, they tend to view the incarnation as an addition problem, like Jesus plus human nature equals divine Jesus, or Jesus plus human nature equals human person. No. So for us, that is Nestorianism. There is no human person in Jesus at all. There is only a divine person. And as we see in the fathers, the second person, the Godhead is the sole subject of all of the actions of Christ, all of them. That is crucial for our position. That's also why penal substitutionary damnation atonement is not true. There's a sense in which you could say Christ is the penal substitute, which I covered in the John Damascus lectures. But as you read uh, Epistle 38 of Basil, you'll see that he points out that there's absolutely no way in which one person in the Godhead could be divided or separated or will the damnation of another because of the perichoresis. They indwell one another. So likewise, in the Incarnation, the second person of the Godhead assumes impersonal human nature and he forever is a, the sole subject of all those actions. Even into all eternity, when we're hanging out with Christ, all eternity, there's only one divine person there and an impersonal human nature that he assumed. It's a fully human nature, but it's not a human person. And that's what makes us Orthodox and not Nestorian and not Calvinists. All right, so uh, if you get a chance, get these two books. Read the two essays that we have linked uh, and that should, if you do your homework, if you guys want to do your homework, I think a lot of you guys do, uh, clear up most of the key objections of clown world this week. This week in clown world news. Clown world goes insane over the theological propositions of Dia. Um, don't listen to the clowns. Don't worry about the haters. Don't worry about them. Who cares what some clown with 100 subscribers, 200 subscribers says? Who cares what guys in trailer parks say? I don't care what they say. Um, Thank you to Amid the Ruins, because we got some disses on my show music. I don't make the show music. I didn't make Direwave. That's not made by me. So uh, if you're a boomer and you're too boomer tiered to appreciate synth wave and retro wave and vapor wave, then I feel sorry for you, son. 
I got 99 problems, but you ain't one. God bless you guys. Uh, thank you for all the super chats. Uh, do your homework and say your prayers. <laughs> Take your vitamins, kids. Right? Was it? Was uh, Mr. T say? Treat your treat your mother right. Treat her right. Treat your mother right. Read your Bible. Uh, and like and share and all that stuff. So thank you guys for the super chats. Good talk. Hopefully we laid to rest and annihilated, put the nail in the coffin on these goofuses. And I'll talk to you very soon.